Hi friends, welcome back to the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and today's guest is Linus Lee. Linus is an independent researcher interested in the future of knowledge representation and creative work aided by machine understanding of language. In his own words, he builds interfaces and knowledge tools that expand the domain of thoughts we can think and qualia we can feel. Linus has been writing online since 2014, accumulating about half a million words of blog posts, and he has built well over a hundred side projects. He has also spent time as a software engineer at Repolit, Hack Club, and Spensa, and is currently a researcher in residence at Betaworks in New York City. This is the longest conversation I've recorded for this podcast so far. While Linus's current interests are directly making use of recent advances in large language models, there is a lot to explore in terms of languages themselves, notations, interfaces between humans and machines that provided a lot of fodder for discussion in and of themselves. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. And as always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Linus Lee. Our first question on this podcast is usually, how did you get into AI? But I think for you, Linus, the the version of this question has to be a lot broader. And so I think I'll ask it in the very eloquent way a friend once asked me this question, which is, what's your deal? <laughs> nice. Uh, my deal is a lot more around interfaces and interactions, which is not to say that I'm like an interaction designer, which I'm definitely not. Uh, I'm also not like an AI. Well, slowly trying to masquerade more as an AI person, but also not not really yet. Um, but I've, uh, I guess my background is what you would call like web engineering traditionally, um, a lot of JavaScript, React, making things in the browser. And, um, and so that's my, I guess, professional background as a front-end developer, mostly making interfaces in the browser. Um, sort of at the intersection of like designing how things should work and actually implementing them. Um, so that was my professional past, but along uh, up until last December or so. But all along that time, I also spent a lot of time working on side projects that branch a little bit out of that. And so I think we'll get into it later, but I've built some like interpreters and compilers and other kinds of like little toy things to learn about how computers work. And um, I didn't really get into anything AI deep learning until this summer. So what happened this year was that up until last year, I was kind of doing front-end web stuff, but I've had a lot of side projects that were around knowledge tools, how people work with information, how people learn, uh, how people read. And so it, I wanted to spend this year um, taking off work and just kind of investigating interesting new ways for people to work with information uh, broadly. 
And so the first half of the year I spent kind of tinkering with how people consume information and building interface prototypes for different ideas for how how could you improve the way that people consume information, particularly around text? How do you improve the way that people consume text? And then around June or so, I started looking at how people produce text. And this was also when um, like generative modeling hype really uh, took off. And so uh, naturally, I, I also looked at language models. And I, to me, what, what that looked like was this is actually a really interesting way to, to turn text into like a material that you can work more directly um, that humans can work more directly with instead of just typing character by character. And so I, the latter half of this year, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how do you, you use language models to build interfaces to let people uh, work more directly with text. And a part of that has been getting deeper into the weeds of how these models work and actually learning about the fundamentals enough to be dangerous uh, building interfaces with these models. That's awesome. And it is a really interesting time to be diving into all of this. I feel like in some of the conversations I've had, there's this lingering question of like, how far can you get with just language or text alone? Like how much can you learn and, and represent about the world? When I, I spoke to Joel Lehman about some of these ideas, there's this sense in which when you look at how the models actually work, and I'm sure you've been learning about the internals of some of these if you take the the Dolly 2 versus Google's Imagen difference, for example, um, and what Joel kind of pointed out was you have the the difference in like the the language model, the the text encoder that's being used. In one part, you've got Dolly 2, which seems to implicitly or actually explicitly be encoding something knowledge about images, whereas right, in Imagen, clip. they're just like, yeah, let's like just take this giant ass text encoder. It's like, you know, you're almost doing these these experiments of how much can text tell us about the world and, and sort of the models themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, the I, I've actually spent the last couple of days looking back at the the Dolly image and stuff and, and the text encoder stuff. Um, it is just a giant text encoder glued onto a language generator or, or an image generator. Um, I think that the way that it seems to me is like it's modeling it's sort of like indirectly modeling human models of the world. And it turns out human models of the world are actually pretty good. Um, but uh, yeah, that seems like the right way to look at at least the immigration part of it. It is pretty cool. That, so the, the other thing that this, the other work that this reminds me of is like um, uh, this, I read this just this morning, but I forget the exact title, but it was something like linearly, learning to linearly map between image and text representations or something like that, where they learn a, a linear mapping between an image, like some kind of a convolutional image model uh, to a soft prompt for GPTJ. And they learned that for that models that were trained only on image supervision can learn representations that uh, can effectively linearly map to a language model so that it can do things like image captioning. Um, and it's not perfect. Clip models are better at it, but it learns enough that it's not a fluke, basically. And um, it's so it seems like all the, we have these different modalities, but it seems like to a large extent they might code for similar things because ultimately all of these senses merge in the human brain. And so we, we use, we have sort of similar visual and linguistic and other kinds of vocabularies for describing the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that, I mean, there's a sort of ongoing debate about the, the need for embodiment in terms of like grounding language. And I'm very sympathetic to that viewpoint. And I think that there is probably a limit to how far you can get in terms of 
I can represent things about the world with text alone. But I do agree that we're probably not all the way there yet in terms of reaching that barrier point, because it does seem like, as you were saying, there's there's so much knowledge about the world that is just encoded in the things we said and the text we've written online. And I think there is a lot more to that, a lot more to be gleaned from just textual data, also image data, I suppose, than we've actually sort of um, gotten into our models so far, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. On the embodiment um, topic, I think if, if your goal is to build this kind of like agentic model that does things in the world and, and experiences things and has memories and are sort of anthropomorphic in that way, um, that seems like the right question to ask. Another way that I've thought about these things is like the the concept of experience doesn't really exist for our models. These are just like models that are generative models that have learned some kind of distribution over the training data. And so uh, you could almost think of them as like um, uh, an alien intelligence. Uh, and so they don't have really have a concept of experience or anything they've done in the past. They have no notion of time. It's just uh, a thing that can make copies of things that it's seen before uh, and sample from the distribution but it makes them useful in a different way. Um, instead of having a single timeline of experience, maybe you could think of them as like they've experienced all possible experiences in the trading distribution simultaneously. And uh, thinking about things that way in a like in this kind of like alien intelligence way, I think is also interesting because it um, even within this current sort of like um, intermediate stage where models can do some interesting things, but are not obviously not like completely human like in the way that they interact with the world, uh, you can still sort of conceptualize them in, in different ways. Yeah, that alternative mode of experience or like all time simultaneously, that's, uh, I don't know if you're explicitly thinking about it, but that reminds me of, I think, a Ted Chiang short story, perhaps, where they were talking about this alien civilization that just had a completely different mode oh, yeah. of, of temporal yeah. experience. A story um, story of your life. That's what I, yeah, I think, I think it was story of your life. But it is interesting just to conceptualize it as like, I mean, there, there's a respect in which the chase for artificial intelligence has as its sort of goalpost been, we want something that is beyond human intelligence or is about human intelligence. And I think that many people like Francois Cholet sort of rightly point out that notions of intelligence, at least so far as like you and I can conceptualize mm -hmm. them, sort of have to be anthropomorphic in a sense, because right. like I can't. I can't even imagine what it's like to be a bat intelligence or something of that sort. And so I just can't even cognize what it means to have a different form of intelligence. But at the same time, I think there is a lot of value to kicking that can down the road a little bit. And then I think in some of the ways that you're doing in your own work as well, looking at, well, what is the complementary nature of these alternative forms of intelligence, alternative ways of grasping information in the world, doing things with it that don't necessarily have to be in line with what I perceive to be human intelligence. Perhaps it's sort of trying to chase after that, but it can also do other really interesting things as well. Yeah, I think there's a few different ways of, I guess, experiencing the world that are adjacent enough to human experience that you can somewhat conceptualize them. One is like language models, one way uh, that you can think of language models is that they, uh, this is stealing a line from Laurier from Conjecture, but they 
model the world is the model everything is probability distributions, right? And so when I experience the world, I go through the world and I, I observe things, and they're just things that I observe, like single data points. But um, when and when I make predictions and when I say things, they're just things that I say. But when a language model quote says things, they for a human to experience them, you have to sample something from the distribution. But really, the model output is like here are all all the possible worlds in like a probability density function over all the possible worlds that that could happen. And if in in certain kinds of th- this way of looking at the world is like a distribution over all possible paths is like in, in a total different part of the world. If you talk to like a quantum physicist, this is also kind of how they look at the world, right? And in, in their work, and it's just a different, slightly different way of like modeling the world and experiencing the world. And um, another example could be around time scales. So humans live a particularly like fixed time scale of like on the order of a century. Um, but how would our experience be different? How would our notion of life and time and change and even things like astronomy be different if humans lived a thousand years or ten thousand years? Or or like on the in the opposite direction, if like fruit flies we lived for like two weeks, how would our experience be different? And there's parts of it that are just like maybe science wouldn't progress as much because we don't have as much knowledge, knowledge transfer and things like that. But like our notion of days would be totally different uh, and things like that. And so there's, I think there's enough interesting sort of conjectures you can make around like ways of experiencing the world that are adjacent to human experience that that are interesting. And then obviously when you think of things like language models where the quote unquote experience is um, sort of the cumulative experience of all of the internet. That, that that is also really wild. Yeah. I think another thing that I was thinking about and what you just said is these modes of, of being, of existing, interacting with the world that are kind of adjacent to human experience. I think they're not totally inaccessible to us. And I think you were kind of hinting at that and that there are ways in which when we are doing certain things, maybe when we're working at like very menial tasks for long periods of time, we kind of lock ourselves into modes of experience that forget a lot of the complexity of like what it is to just be a human in the world. And so Mm. when you're doing really rote things, you know, you're maybe translating or you're kind of moving things around an Excel spreadsheet for like hours on end, there is a sense in which you kind of become something that is a little bit more limited. And I think that there, there is something to that, like, okay, now I can kind of understand what people mean by like more limited forms of sentience or or something of that flavor too yeah yeah definitely there's also a different kind of intelligence which is a little bit closer to my heart and and the kind of work that i've been doing but that's around um completely non-embodied intelligence so it's even strange to call it kind of intelligence but, but i don't know what else you would call it mathematical notation is a kind of intelligence like a human with algebraic notation as a tool to wield is much smarter and more effective um, and perhaps also conceptualizes and experiences the world in different ways. But this is a kind of externalized intelligence. It's not, it's not really agentic at all. It's not even acting on anything or consuming any information. It's just a thing, but it is a kind of model of the world and there is intelligence to be had in it. Um, and there's different ways of thinking about it. One way you could think about it is like, Mathematical notation is a is a representation of these like abstractions of things that you observe in the world, and they let you work in terms of abstractions. Another way to, another way to think about it is that it's kind of like like if if you have a model of the world, it's like the math is like a particular set of basis vectors that you can use to think about the world. There are other other sets of vectors, um, but this type of 
quote, intelligence that math notation is, I think is super interesting because it doesn't require the, the thing to be an agent or anything that is like even active. And partly because of that, uh, you can use math notation and then it kind of, you can kind of subsume it into your own model of the world and it changes the way you perceive the world and think. And that kind of intelligence, I think, is really interesting as uh, something that feels a lot more like a tool than like a computer or agent or, or an active kind of model. Yeah, there's an interesting like extended mind idea going on there, I guess, in the way that like your your cognition and your intelligence, they can kind of cooperatively mold with one another in terms of understanding the world. And I do want to dive really deep into some of your thoughts on notational intelligence. I think maybe with this this teaser of things to come, though, uh, we can turn the conversation back a little bit towards your independent research. Although first, you have a very interesting handle that you use for your website and Twitter, and I want to hear where that came from. Yeah, so the handle is the Cephist, which um, I use everywhere except, I think, YouTube, where it's taken, and Steam, which I don't really use. So I... I guess now I'm at one point I was really into programming languages. I guess now I'm more into natural languages, but, but even before that I was into I spent a lot of time diving into linguistics as like an amateur sort of amateur linguist. And uh there was a phase where one of my philosophies about learning things is you have to like build your own version of a thing to really understand how it works. And so naturally when I studied linguistics, I like built my own constructed language. And there's a whole online community of people who sort of do this for fun or their hobby is constructing worlds, constructing languages and cultures and things like that. And I spent a phase as kind of a, a member of this community building languages and thinking about the, the rudimentary version of this is just like coming up with your own words for things and things like that. But you can go really deep into it. You can think about um, how do you build your own grammar? What kinds of, what is the space of all possible grammars? And just like you can think about grammars in a structured way in programming languages, you can think about grammars for human languages in a similar kind of way. And so what are possible grammars? How do you invent new kinds of grammars? And so I had this whole phase where I made my own language and writing system and uh, kind of got into it. And uh, the Cephist is a word that means a thing in that language uh, that I will not reveal on this podcast. But uh it's a remnant of that phase and it's like unique enough. And at this point, it's like an enough of an identifier for me that I kind of keep it around. Keeping some mystery. That's really interesting. I never really got into like the construction of languages myself, but I was interested in that idea for a time because I've always been really into Tolkien. And mm. I think one of the things I later discovered about him was that he was also very deep into the study and the creation of languages like Elvish. I know that he fashioned with like an actual full system of, yeah. of grammar. And so it's kind of fascinating just to see the the creativity, the different ideas that can kind of blossom from just, I want to develop a, a new mode of expression. Yeah, I think one of my takeaways from that phase was that the version of language that we use, like if you think of the possibility space of all possible languages, it's it's partly just constrained by our biology. Like we have this thing that is like our vocal system and it can only make sort of sounds and produce auditory things. And so it has to be kind of linear and our mouths only make certain sounds where so you, you work within the range of the sounds. But even within those constraints, our language is actually quite arbitrary. And the set of all possible human languages that we speak that you find on earth covers a relatively small part of all possible languages humans are really creative with sounds. There's different kinds of sounds that our languages are based on. But outside of the phonetics, 
in terms of grammar or uh, so to pick a specific thing, the way that we describe action, almost all human languages have this thing that is like a subject and then like some kind of a verb and then and, and some kind of an object that the subject is acting on. And it doesn't necessarily have to be this way. You could like one version that I've thought about is like, you don't really have to have a verb. You can just describe everything as like subjects and then like descriptions of subjects. And like, instead of saying, I am drinking a water, you could say like Linus water drinker. And and you like, there, there are different ways of describing things and the it, the particular kind of arbitrary choices that uh, all human languages have made that, that fall into these like grooves that the human brain seems to naturally fall into, I think is super interesting. I feel like when you try to take that vision of not having verbs and then transpose it into, I guess, French or, or English, where you kind of get as Proust, I don't know how much of them you've read, but it <laughs> feels like you're just these extended descriptions of like you you read a hundred pages of him and it's like oh that was about 10 minutes in a conversation two people had at like a soiree basically nothing happened and it's beautiful but there's not much actually like actively happening at the time Hmm. and i can it's kind of interesting just to imagine what a language that sort of gets away from the whole idea of action would be like that's an interesting idea yeah they there's natural languages that push the bounds i think as well so i one of my other sort of natural languages first languages is korean and in korean there's a lot of i forget the formal word for this but different languages have this to varying extents uh, particularly in colloquial in vernacular speak spoken language where Obviously, in English, you can omit different parts if they're implied in conversation, but it's not called like, grammatically correct. Like if I just say it's grammatically formally correct, there's like a um, kind of linguistic construct that this is called that I can't quite recall, but you can omit certain parts of a sentence if they're implied in the context of the conversation. And so if someone asks me, so a, a really a trivial version of this in English would be like, you could ask a question like, what color is that door? And you can say red. And the, the the full sentence of like that door is right is implied. But um, I'm trying to think of a good example in Korean, it would be like, if, like have you eaten? But instead of saying the words "have you eaten" for breakfast, you could just say like "eaten?" question mark That sounds kind of wrong in English, but it's a, like a fully grammatically correct kind of construction in Korean. And um, there's lots and lots and lots of that. And, and one of the things that I think make in retrospect Korean kind of difficult to learn is that it just kind of feels wrong if you're not used to it. But if in if my, when my brain is in like the Korean mode, it feels really right. I, I know exactly what you mean. I spent a lot of time in high school and a bit in college learning Mandarin Chinese. And I think that I guess at the beginning of my study, it was very formal. Like you're still learning the basic grammatical sentence patterns. And so there is a formality to it. And you kind of have to think in English in this very explicit way where I'm trying to map the words kind of one-to-one, even if you can't exactly do that just because the sentence structures are quite different. But eventually, as I got really into it and started trying to figure out, I, I went to Beijing two times, and so you know, I kind of had to figure out how do I actually speak like colloquial Chinese and not sound like an alien to people. Yeah, I think you know, there's like very similar ways in which people speak. So that example, like Chifan Lama, you know, it's like very like a very common form of greeting. And as you said, you kind of miss 
certain aspects of what would be considered like a formal sentence structure. But right. yeah, a lot of the meaning there is kind of just known to be like mutual context, which is really yeah. interesting. And it's not even that you can, I mean, obviously you're omitting the part, but if you added the thing that was missing back, it would sound incorrect. It would sound like almost overly formal or something, which, exactly. which uh, is the interesting part. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think that's really interesting. And it's just like the, the classic ways in which you speak. And I think there's something about, I guess different people have, there's like the whole like linguistic determinism, like Sapir-Whorf hypothesis thing. There is something to like when you are sort of in different domains, when you are kind of in one language, you really have to be like in it, sort of thinking in that mm -hmm. language. Like when I'm, I think it took me a long time, but in sort of the process of learning Chinese and getting into that immersion, there was a point where it's like no longer useful to sort of explicitly translate between English and Chinese in my head. I kind of just right. had to go like full send into it and sort of forget the the English to more effectively communicate in the new language. Yeah, there's a uh, so the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Interesting. Uh, but th there's a weaker version of this that I think is definitely true, which is that um, so, sort of to pull from a personal experience as I got so I spent a lot of half this year getting into machine learning and reading lots of papers and learning to read papers in math that it's involved in this. And it's sort of a weird, every branch of math and computer science has its own like math notation dialect that it uses. And um, I spent a while in the like, programming languages world and they have a extremely specific dialect of math that they use. And uh, machine learning is no exception. It's like a strange sort of bastardized version of probability theory math. And the experience of learning how to read these things rapidly over time has been really interesting because I have papers that I've read in like June, July, and I go back to them now and the reading experience is completely different, especially around math notation, where before I looked at them and I, I saw kind of individual letters and they had connotations that I knew from general math and algebra and they I couldn't really break down these equations. So I just kind of, my eyes glossed over them. But now I go back and I look at sort of higher level chunks. It's like my brain has learned specific units of vocabulary and rules of grammar for how to decipher things like loss functions and model descriptions. And now I can look at them and say, oh, this is this is sort of the objective and this is how they're broken down. It, this looks similar to this other thing that I know about. And so I've learned a kind of vocabulary uh, and armed with that vocabulary, I can now decipher these things where before that, uh, before that you can't. It's how like in, um, if you look at sort of old Latin, old Latin um, Greek and Latin manuscripts, there are no spaces. <laughs> All the words are just kind of slammed together and it's really hard to to read them um and before someone had the concept to invent the concept of like words with spaces in between them but like it's so obvious in hindsight why you would do that but if you think about it like there is no reason a priori that you would you would put spaces between words because when you listen to someone speak all the words are slammed together and so the brain is somehow doing that segmentation in audio and uh i guess it, it makes sense to do it in, in um, the visual format as well but not uh it's it's an idea that someone had the first comment I have, I think, is that I had the same exact experience as you in terms of reading ML papers, that over time, you really develop an intuitive sense of like the different components of a loss function. And so I think at one point, if you are kind of, at one point, you're glossing over it, at another point, you're really trying to grok it. And so you're sort of taking apart like every piece of the of the notation and sort of breaking it apart chunk by chunk and paying attention to each explicit part. But then at some point, as you said, you develop this vocabulary and it's almost like a 
like each part of an equation is like a word to you or something. And it has a more abstract, higher level meaning. And so you're able to get a lot more out of it in different ways and break it apart. Um, and there's like an, an efficiency in thinking that comes with that, that I also find really fascinating. And I think that's something that like when you take a class in algorithms or, or analysis, for instance, I think one of the main things that you come away from that with is a specific set of tools with which you can more efficiently like chunk apart the world and think about specific types of problems. That's really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing about the, the so that the, it's interesting that you use the word tools there. Um, one of the ways that I think you can break down the set of kind of vocabulary that you learn is there are like nouns and there are um, verbs, maybe adjectives, I'm not sure, but there are certainly nouns and verbs. Like there are concepts and, and um, objects, and then there are like things you can do on them. And so uh, one way to think about them is like the concepts and objects are kind of like terms in an equation, and then you can like apply rewriting rules, like term rewrites, um, at least that's what's called in programming language theory, or you can like um, rewrite the equation, apply something to both sides, things like that. And in math, both parts of that, both sides of the vocabulary, both the nouns and the verbs are really, really well developed. We have, in fact, there are disciplines of math that just study like the, the set of all possible nouns and verbs, right? It's called category theory. Uh, you have, uh, it's a whole domain that studies what are all the possible like ideas that you could have? And then like, what are all the possible operations that you can define on these ideas to let you do things? And um, one of the questions that's in the back of my mind as I look at things like language models and what you can do with them to build better kind of knowledge tools is we have fairly um, mature descriptions of like nouns in general around general knowledge. Like you can talk about ideas and you have abstractions for talking about things like questions and answers and steps of reasoning and evidence. And uh, we have a rather underdeveloped, I think, set of um, operations that you can do on ideas. And I think a lot of that is because it's hard to operate on text and ideas. All of this is really soft and fluffy and, and um, abstract, but uh, language models is a way of making them a little more concrete and letting you do math over it, which is kind of interesting. That's a fascinating idea. I, yeah, the concept of like an operation on an idea. I mean, there's like initial things that come to mind for me are like when you just have a set of words or, or a statement, you can take that statement and you can articulate it in different ways depending on the kind of connotation you want to have or the particular audience or something of that sort. But that's like a very limited, I think, I think that's a very limited form of what an operation could possibly be. Yeah, so there's different different layers. Um, at the lowest level are presentational elements. You could like take the same text and, and I'll get more to this later when we talk about the latent space model stuff, but um, you could take the text and make it longer, make it shorter, summarize or elaborate. Um, you could change kind of structural things. You could take the same paragraph and present it as bullet points presented as a story, a narrative format presented as a kind of prose. Um, and then there's even higher level kind of like idea semantic stuff. Like you could take an idea and um, map it to some examples of that idea, or I take an argument and disagree with that argument or take a skeptical, produce a skeptical take on it or something like that. And um, these are all kind of operations like rewrites you can do. And one way to think about how you reason through an idea or how you arrive at a conclusion is you take an idea, you apply a bunch of these rules 
uh, and maybe like branch out to different different ways that you can think about them, and then you arrive at a conclusion. Um, but there's no real uh, we don't have like a really developed sense of like what are all the things that you can apply to an idea to get to a conclusion, and uh, that seems like a shame. Yeah, it really does. But I can also see how once we start figuring out what some of these operations look like, you do have a more interesting set of ways that you can cognize and like understand what something is, I suppose. This might be a good place to pivot back to uh, talking a bit about your independent research and projects, kind of having previewed more of what we'll talk about later. First, I want to talk about sort of your journey to doing independent research, like why you chose to take time to do that, what your perhaps day-to-day looks like, what the experience has been for you. Yeah, I'm an amateur at all of this, I would say. Uh, it's My approach has been pretty ad hoc. I, I'm fairly uh, reserved about actually using the phrase independent research. I guess I'm independent in the sense that I don't have an affiliation, institutional affiliation, but research is like, is what I'm doing really research or is it more really like, like engineering um, or just kind of tinkering? I don't know, but um, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, that's definitely true. But what I've done essentially is I started the year with sort of high level idea of like what kinds of questions I wanted to ask and pursue, which is this really broad question of how can we, how can we improve the way that people interact with text? Um, text is the most ubiquitous and the least ergonomic information display user interface element in the world. Text is obviously in software. Text is everywhere. Um, and it's kind of uh, rampant um, in software because it's the easiest thing to put in a piece of program. But it's also ubiquitous in the real world, like street signs, menus, instruction manuals, um, notes, text is everywhere. And it's um, not really designed for the way that humans experience the world. Like it's these like chicken scratches on pieces of paper that we've kind of formalized, but it's, we, humans don't interact with them in the way that we interact with any other kind of like object in the world. Like if I have a, if I have a cup, a cup, this one doesn't have a handle, but if I had like a mug that I could look at the material, I could hold it. I could look at like the shape of the object and I could tell that it was a handle. So I could hold it. There's like affordances that tell me how to use it. There's affordances that tell me what it's made of, what I should and shouldn't do with it. Um, you look at a paragraph and there's no affordance. It's just like ink on paper and you have to read it in this like fixed level of detail from start to end. Um, I was just talking with a friend this morning and we were talking about how like uh, when you look at the Mona Lisa, you don't look at it by like reading the top left pixel and then reading literally all the way to the bottom right. And then like, that'd be stupid. What you do is you look at it. And then if you're curious about it, you look at it closer and you know, if it was not the Mona Lisa, but like a children's drawing, you could like touch it and feel it. Um, and uh, ideally, with ideas, with text, things that are abstract and symbolic, you would be able to interact with in the same way. And so like, what does that look like? And so that was like a high level question. Um, in the beginning, I, I didn't really have any kind of structure. I had this like, big question, I had some sub questions that were like, how can we improve the way that people consume text? I had um, specific approaches, like one way to approach the question of consuming text, improving the way that people consume text is to look at a page of text as a kind of data display and apply the same rules that you use to build good data visualizations to say, how can you treat text as data visualization without removing the text from it? And so one way you could do it is by um, applying sort of classic NLP techniques to pull out things like topics and different kinds of sentence structures and um, extractive summarization and 
apply annotations and highlights and overlays on top of the text to make it a better way to display the data without taking the text out of the equation. And um, that kind of loose, just, so I built a few prototypes around that idea um, and prototypes continue to be kind of core to what I do. But uh, in the beginning, that wasn't so, so structured. Um, recently, it's become a lot more structured. And now what my day-to-day work ends up being is some days are a lot more about learning and reading and um, reading things like reading papers, reading blogs, reading other people's um, emails and ideas and conversations. And some days are a lot more about uh, I have enough conviction about a specific implementation of an interface or a model or something that I want to try it. And I just try to build like the sketchiest version of it. And uh, these aren't these aren't like projects or things that I ship. These are just like you implement enough of it that you can prove or disprove some hypothesis. And uh, and I try it, maybe I give it to some people. And then based on that, I update my hypothesis and keep going. And I guess in that sense, it, it's, it's a little bit like research. Um, but all of this is framed around quite specific questions and then hypotheses that go go for those questions. And so like a question that I've been thinking a lot about recently is what are the right, uh, talking about sort of a vocabulary of ways of, for ways of operating on text, what are like the right abstractions for building this vocabulary? Um, is it like different kinds of operations or maybe it's like example-based? Like maybe you have, maybe one way to think about it could be, I have this kind of tool uh, that is, a tool that I can apply to a piece of text and turn it into bullet points or turn it into some other structure. But a different way to think about it is maybe the abstraction shouldn't be the tools. Maybe the abstraction should be like examples and sort of like um, copy style and paste style. And so uh, maybe I sh- the operation should be, I take some bullet points and then I say, copy the structure of the text and now apply it to this prose and it transforms it into bullet points. And these are two different ways of taking advantage of the same technology maybe, but, but using it in different ways. And which one feels better, why? Um, and one way to answer that is by just building it and then seeing how it works. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that definitely does sound like research to me. (laughs) I think that, um, yeah, it it sounds, it sounds like, um, there, it sounds like you've kind of developed a pretty effective way of, I guess, over time sort of coming up with this or having this structure around you, you have a thesis, you have a hypothesis, and as you said, sometimes you need to to learn a little bit, but then at some point you have enough conviction that like, okay, this is sort of a reasonable experimental prototype that could kind of answer my question. And then you sort of adjust and go on. Um, the other element that sort of emerged by accident, but I found really helpful, especially as with things that are focused on prototypes and demos is um, particularly because I don't work in any kind of a team and so I'm pretty fast and loose with my schedule. Um, one thing that's helped a lot is scheduling sort of regular demos in private sessions. Um, the private session part is important because uh, I think public discourse is useful for one kind of learning and private conversations, especially with people who've other people who've thought a lot about this stuff is useful for a different kind of conversation and learning. And so I t- try to schedule demos every couple of weeks. And um, that's, if nothing else, that's an incentive for me to build something so I don't just like sit on my butt but it's also helpful in that I build something and then I go talk about it and I, I learn from those conversations they inspire to the next round of work and it it's it provides a kind of like regular cadence to my work that otherwise wouldn't be there um, public conversations I find helpful for like discovering entire um, subfields or prior work that I was not aware of or maybe finding an entirely new way of looking at things but otherwise 
um, public conversations, especially ones without a lot of context that happened on things like places like Twitter, um, they tend to be fairly shallow. And so they'll maybe they'll say, have you looked at this work? And they'll say, oh, this is a cool demo, but like, this is a cool demo is not a really helpful comment. Um, where, but, but it's a good way to find new people and find new sources of information. And then I go bring those into private conversations. And sometimes I'll just hit people up if they, if they like my demos and we'll have a deeper conversation about what are the right ways to think about this? What other questions have you had about this, this general area? And, and those conversations be, tend to be more fruitful for actually moving forward on my ideas and questions. Yeah, they definitely are certain different styles of productivity. I guess it's like a not it's not entirely a dichotomy, but I think there definitely is like a depth versus breadth component in terms of those two different styles of, of gathering feedback and like holding yourself accountable by showing what you're doing to a certain group of people. Yeah, it's a weird, I think the balance that I've been able to strike that I think works well is uh, there is incentive to show something new in every kind of demo or conversation. And so there's, um, I guess, motivation in that sense. But no one's going to punish me if I don't deliver something. It's just kind of on me. And so I like that combination of like regular cadence and things that I can sort of anchor my deadlines to. But um, I don't I don't have to like struggle to meet that deadline if, if for some reason I get sidetracked on something really interesting. Yeah, that's that's a nice thing about self-imposed deadlines. Let's talk a little bit about some of the the actual concrete projects you've worked on. And so. Maybe to start with, we had a long discussion about languages. And as you mentioned, you had a time where you were working on interpreters and compilers. So I think you you have two languages you worked on that you've used for your own personal projects, Oak and Ink. I know Ink was the first one, right? And that was kind of an experiment to study writing interpreters and compilers. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, Ink came out of actually uh, an undergrad computer science course I took. Um, which it wasn't even a compiler course. It was just kind of a general um, kind of interpreter course. But one of the projects in that course was building a Lisp interpreter. And um, I think some, you could, I could have taken it as just like another kind of project. But to me, it was really eye-opening that you could, it's kind of silly when you think about it, but but the fact that an interpreter is just another program that you could write. And this interpreter was written in Python, so it was painfully slow, but it worked. And this idea of, of, um, interpreters and compilers are just other programs that act on other programs. It was um, eye-opening for me. And so that was the final project for that semester. And I had the summer break off uh, on an internship. And so I spent all the off hours in my internship uh, that year at home uh, building like an interpreter. But this time it wasn't a Lisp interpreter. It was like an interpreter of my own design with my own syntax. And uh, because who doesn't want uh, you know, to bike shed every little detail of their syntax of like a magical programming language that they could make for their own. And so uh, that was a really novice take, um, like my first interpreter learning about all these things using like a lower level language. Um, and there was a lot of mistakes, but, um, I had a working interpreter. I had enough of like a library that I made for myself that I could build somewhat interesting things with it. Like some, a lot of my other projects that I made at the time are built with ink. And then, um, I used ink for like a year, year and a half. And, um, I realized that I had learned enough in first in building ink, but then a lot more in using ink um, to learn uh, what things I liked about it, what worked well, what didn't work well. And uh, at some point it came time and I was like, I, this is, I'm depending a lot on this thing that I made for myself and this tool is bad because it was my first attempt. So let's make a second attempt. That's a lot better. And so uh, that was where Oak came from. And Oak is mostly, I didn't change a lot. It's not like a 
brand new take or anything. And none of the ideas in either of these languages are um, new, but they're just kind of practical and they suit my taste um, and they look nice in my opinion. And so Oak takes a lot of the same ideas, fixes a lot of the mistakes, uh, makes it just like more convenient to use. Like um, a really trivial example is in Ink, the standard library that I made for myself is like just lives in a different file. Um, whereas in Oak, the library is bundled into the interpreter. And so you don't have to like copy it everywhere you go. Um, and it's kind of a stupid thing, but but uh, in retrospect, but uh, I did I just didn't know how to do it in Ink. So I made a bunch of fixes, and then now a lot of my projects are written um, using Oak. Um, and uh, I, in general, am really fanatical about building your own tools uh, where it's not a dumb idea. And a lot of my side projects are just kind of like things that I build for myself. They're not like production pieces of software, and so it makes sense to do do it do them with uh, something that's fun and. My language. I like using the things that are built to make build other things, and I like the way that the code looks. So that makes sense. Do you feel like you kind of developed a taste for the style of programming language you like to use over that time? Because I remember reading that Ink was primarily inspired by JavaScript. I want to say, and I know that Oak also kind of took syntax from there, but. You, I think, also mentioned that it often borrows from functional programming as well. Yeah, I think this is something that anyone who writes new programming languages does, is they kind of do a survey of all the different families of programming languages. Um, there's high-level things like functional versus objective or, or object-oriented versus whatever, but there's also lower-level things like like things as trivial as like, should the keyword be fn or fun or funk or function or like proc or whatever? And um, the nice thing about making your own language is that you can you know, customize them to your heart's content. You don't have to argue with anyone else about what they what they are. And so um, a lot of the stylistic things I took from, um, I think, like Rasta and Lua, um, which I, I think struck the right balance between like being kind of concise and nice to look at aesthetically um, and... Uh, so a lot of the pieces are taken, especially I learned as I learned more about different kinds of programming languages. A lot of them are taken from a lot of different things, but the semantics are, I think, most close to like JavaScript and Lua and Lisp. Mm, that's interesting. Is there is there anything in particular you like or dislike about, I guess, like functional versus imperative languages? One thing I'd been thinking about a while back was. Um, there's this project by a group of people, including including one of the creators of PyTorch called HaskTorch. So they're basically trying to build the same thing, but in Haskell. And they have a really interesting argument for like, why should this exist? And that has to do with, I think they, they just feel like the functional style is a much better fit for like articulating neural networks for articulating the structure of it. And they also kind of point out how a lot of existing libraries like PyTorch within Python for doing neural networks are basically kind of operating like like DSLs anyway. And so um, they have a very interesting take on like, why should this exist? How should you do it? And so I'm curious just if you've developed any stronger taste for things over time, if that has perhaps been something that as you've dived into the ML world that you've kind of begun to think about in conjunction at all? I think I don't think there's a huge amount of crossover. I have the the element of this that um, seems really interesting is like 
all of the tools that people use in ML are um, kind of DSLs over different things. Um, like, uh, and they they work on different levels of abstraction. And you see sort of the innovation cycles here where first you start with TensorFlow, which is just like they're directly describing kind of computation graphs. And then you have PyTorch, which is a lot more imperative, but you're doing the sort of graph inference under the hood. Um, and then you have Jax, which is like PyTorch, but but you form these graphs. So it becomes more and more like a compiler. And then it sounds like the Haskell Torch um, thing is like even more pushing in that direction. Um, there's, I think to a certain extent, you can like kind of have whatever interface you want and make it like go as fast as you want if you just have enough money. Like JavaScript is the ultimate testament to like, if you have a really slow, like stupidly designed language, JavaScript is great, but like the design is really bad. And, uh, but if you put billions of dollars of engineering into it, then you could make it the fastest dynamic language in the world. And you can make it go as fast as C, literally. And um, so tinkering around with these things, uh, lots of people enjoy it for good reason. Um, and I think it does help us explore the breadth of like what kinds of things are possible. But a lot of like language adoption and what kind of tools people build are just a matter of... There's a part of this cycle that is like the innovation cycle. And there's like a part of the cycle on top of that that is like um, just fashion. And uh, a lot of the ideas get rediscovered, but um, the, yeah, incrementally we we improve. That's a fair point. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your projects, Monocle and Reverie, that I know were more organized around this idea of of a personal search engine. Yes. So this these are a pair of projects that I made mid last year, I want to say, um, mid twenty twenty one, and they're a pair of personal search engines. Um, they search over an index of, I think, somewhere around like 25,000 or 30,000 personal data points. And so they include things like journals, um, articles and bookmarks online, contacts, uh, con- uh, what are the things? Um, I'm blanking, but there's a, there's like seven or eight data sources, I guess, tweets, social media posts, things like that. And um, they're a pair because Monocle is a full text search engine. I can search for things like people's names and locations and keywords and Reverie is a semantic search engine. So I can give it like an article or a phrase and find things that are related to it. And they're both useful. Um, the semantic search is not anything fancy. It's just a bag of words on word embeddings, but it works well enough for my use cases that it's it's fast and simple. Um, and I was learning about word embeddings at the time. And uh, they're probably, and uh, I think a lot of people like the idea of a personal search engine. I don't think it works well for everybody, because I thought like humans just don't produce that much data unless people are really like, like most people just don't have enough um, interesting information they produce uh, outside of their work life. And usually at work, you have a pretty good search engine over what you produce. Um, where I, like I read a lot, I used to journal a lot um, and it's sort of like take notes meticulously. And so uh, it's, a, it's kind of a neat idea. Um, all of uh, Monocle was also written in Ink, which is kind of, it's like a full text search engine where the, the text search and the algorithms and, and TF-IDF and things that are all written in Ink. And so uh, I learned a lot about search, building all those things. And it's one of the, it's like, I think a good example of like a project where I learned a lot building it and then I deployed it and then I still continue to kind of use it to this day uh, to find everything from like my like airline mileage um, card number or whatever to people to like old journal articles that I've uh, written a long time ago. Yeah, it's interesting just to consider the idea of the data that we create or don't create kind of going about our daily lives. Like Ben Thompson has really interesting thoughts on this just because he's written quite a bit about the 
takes people seem to have on data privacy, which I think is kind of a whole other subject related to this. But I think that the point he made that is relevant to what you were saying earlier is, yes, we don't always produce a lot of useful data that we might want to index and search over, but the default mode of being on the internet is fundamentally producing lots and lots of data with every click, with every interaction, with basically anything. And that's not always useful for you to want to know about and search over, but somebody's going to want to know about it and somebody does know about it for the most part. So it's it's kind of interesting, although I don't know, I think I think some of that data, some of these types of data, there is there's something you can learn about yourself from it. I mean, you know, Apple kind of pings us every week with the the terrible amounts of screen time that we've had over the past few days. So there is that, but it is it is interesting just kind of digging a little bit into the idea of like producing data as as a mode of being that I found um kind of kind of scintillating for some reason. Yeah, that's that's a good thought. I like um a lot of the things that I index over in my search engine kind of experiments are very intentionally actively produced data. But obviously you're just kind of like spewing data points all over the place as you as you exist in the world. And um it's just that it's harder to get interesting insight out of them and it's harder to search for them because they're not structured and it's unclear what you can learn from it off the, off the bat. Um, but hopefully maybe, and I guess that's the idea behind things like sleep tracking and um, logging what you eat, but um, maybe at some point we'll get there where we can just ask like, you know, what can I improve about my health? And the magical genie will go and look at your, your life records and tell you. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a difference in intentionality there. I guess on one end you've got the data you are intentionally producing for the purpose of, I can actually gleam something about this. So your notes, your blog posts. And on the other hand, there's lots of data. Probably some of it is trash, but there's plenty of it where you can apply some intentionality to the end of, of collecting and actually using that data. And so it's almost like the intentionality is there. There's kind of different ends to it, either in the production of it or in the collecting and trying to gleam something out of it, I suppose. Yeah. A useful example of this is like web browsing history. I think in theory, it sounds really nice to be able to search your web browsing history. But if you actually look at the data, like 90% of the pages you visit, you were, you never have a reason to visit again, and it's just trash. And so the way that I fix that myself is I have a, I use a extension, browser extension called Pocket. It's just one click to save to bookmarks list, and then I only archive the things that I save there. But I sort of archive obsessively over anything that's mildly interesting, um, which even, even that like mildly interesting bar is like a fairly high bar and only like one in every 20 or 30 sites that ever go to um, clear that bar. And so it's it's a good sort of noise filter. Um, but yeah, that, that balance, uh, a lot of people, I think, rightly sort of like the idea of browsing or um, be able to search for everything, everything you experience, everything you, you read. But in reality, a lot of things you read and experience are just not that interesting. Yeah, that's very fair. I, I think extensions like Pocket, Another one I've encountered is Curious, which is really great if you just want to have all your your highlights for things you read consolidated in one place. And That's the I one mean, with the social element too, right? Yeah, exactly. I haven't used it as much for the social element, but just as a place to like keep highlights for like very long articles and things I found interesting, I found it immensely valuable. Um, but those tools are definitely really interesting takes on this. So kind of jiving with this a little bit after building monocle you wrote this article the web browser as a tool of thought and i'd love to hear you maybe rearticulate some of the ideas you had there yeah let me actually 
this has been a while. Let me let me Google my own blog post and remind myself what the ideas are. Um, uh, I can I can prompt engineer here a little bit here. So extracting a line I have open, you at the time were becoming increasingly convinced that the future of the web browser is the best tool named medium for thought. And that at the time with Zettelkasten and journaling, we're busy making more effective command line apps for thought rather than dreaming up graphical interfaces. Mm. Yeah, I think there's two interesting ideas here, at least that I can recall at the moment. Um, One is uh, this idea that... um, no single like your your life and your ideas are so spread out amongst all the different apps that you use that no single like there is no like ultimate notes app because like you're always going to use apple notes you're always going to have contacts you're always going to have email and there's information there and so this effort for like building the ultimate like single source of data is i think um kind of futile and and so you have to have a more kind of cross-platform solution and the other thought which i think is more interesting is the web browser, at least for the subset of your life that is that happens on a computer on the web, the web browser is sort of like your like cyborg AR glasses or into the into that world. And so, if you want to build um, intelligence augmenting tools that work everywhere, the browser is a good place to start. If you have things like summarization or keyword um, keyword extraction or things like that, these tools kind of built into your browser, they're going to work kind of everywhere. And so if you want to augment your experience of working with information, a lot of our information work these days is done inside a browser. So browser seems like a good place to start for building these augmentations. Uh, and then maybe they'll later scale out into the real world and things like that. But the browser seemed like a really interesting place to do lots of experiments and, and push these ideas forward. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. I, I guess kind of just speaking to the, the browser apps that we were mentioning earlier, I think those are like very interesting ways of kind of getting at like small small portions of the things we might want to do so in that case of like let me just save something and maybe i can share that with other people or i can save highlights and notes related to the things i'm thinking about and share that socially there is an aspect of that like using this as a way to collaboratively explore the space of ideas or just myself kind of connect across the different things that I tend to be doing online. But those are, of course, you know, like very small additions. And you can, I can certainly see how there's a lot more space to explore what that could possibly look like. Yeah, I think one underexplored avenue here is all the browsers still are, um, people are sort of pushing forward on this a little bit now, but all the browsers have been for a long time just consumption um, experiences. And uh consumption experiences that treat the page as like a single atomic unit even. And so um, the idea of like highlighting a paragraph or taking a widget off a page and treating it as its own thing that you can share or save or come back to or whatever um, wasn't really practiced um, on the mainstream browsers. Uh, But that's really one of the ways of thinking about the web is like it's uh, web content is a kind of like software material. Uh, It's like extremely multimodal, very dynamic, interactive and uh, you can take like a paragraph off a page and take the styles and take the screenshot and the text content. And th- that paragraph can be like its own thing. Like you can kind of save it and come back to it. And you could have a dynamic thing too, like um, like the calendar, which, or like the player of Spotify. Like imagine if you could have a Spotify tab, which is take like the, the player at the bottom 
and like sort of put it somewhere else on your desktop. And now that's just like a little portal into the Spotify app. Um, the web browser is this like incredibly flexible um, sort of like runtime for any kind of dynamic thing, dynamic content or software that's taken over the world. And the original sort of browser was intended as a user agent. And if you think carefully about that, what that means is that the browser, the browser's job is not to display the content as faithfully as the author is intended or whatever. It's, it's to be the agent for the user for me. Like ideally it should serve me more than it should serve the authors of the page. And it should serve the authors of the page to the extent that it makes it easier for me to consume that information. And so what does the browser look like really when you sort of take on this word, this like term user agent in full, and you ask like, what can the browser do to enhance my experience of working, interacting with this content? And you get things like, what if you could just take this page, the part of this page out and crop it out and like, give it to me as a widget on my desktop? Or what if you could... Um, or, or, or things like as, as trivial as like reader views where you just take the content and strip out the ads in the Chrome. And, and that's like a better, that's a great example of like the browser being a user, an effective user agent. But I think there's a lot more we can push there. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea kind of transposing. I mean, I guess it is, as you said, going back to this original definition of what it was supposed to be user agent. But there is certainly a sense in which, as you were also pointing out, just by the way that we tend to use browsers, they become very consumption focused and that's become kind of the definition that we have. And there's a lot that can be done in breaking out of that. There's one last kind of just fun project I wanted to talk about that you developed called This AI Does Not Exist that generates, um, I think, realistic depictions and code snippets of ML models, given a name for one that doesn't exist. And I'm wondering if there are just any particularly interesting outputs you've seen from from that um it's basically exactly what it sounds like it uh, you give it a name of a model like um i don't know DinoNet, and it'll spit out a description that's like DinoNet is a model that's trained on a data set of dinosaur images so it'll try to classify dinosaurs into whatever whatever and it it generates a code snippet and the code snippet i think is interesting because it um it's uh it's the model behind it is gptj and so I, I found that it's a little better than GPT-2 at, at code generation, but it uh, spits out like convincing code samples um, that that plausibly is like a, a PyTorch example or a Hugging Face example or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't I haven't uh, found anything super interesting or learned anything super insightful. But it was a fun. It was the first real like project where I've used I used a language model. So this is a while ago, um, but I got a sense for like how to use these things, what they're good at, what they're bad at, spend some time prompt engineering and the kind of basics of, of how to work with these things. And it was a fun project. And um, it uh, cost me a pretty penny in terms of hosting because I didn't realize it would go so popular and people just really like clicking that generate button. Um, but That's that uh, good in the end. Yeah, those costs are the unfortunate, uh, the unfortunate side effect of creating something that becomes popular. Um, I think this would be a good place to pivot back into some of your higher level thinking and writing. And so we were we were previewing some of this earlier, but you have a very interesting post on knowledge representation in which you introduce this idea of notational intelligence. You talk about notation in general um, and this property of notation as embodied abstraction. Do you want to break that term down for me a little bit and just how you think about notation versus language more broadly. Yeah, notation, I think, is a, um, 
in some sense more general, at least to me. Um, I think when people think of notation, they think of a particular um, set of examples, which is things like math notation, um, notation for working through like equations or scientific problems or notations around um, like medicine, biology, or whatever. There's programming languages or kind of notation, but uh, there's you could define it a little more broadly, and you can look at even things like um, so music notation is obviously one. Music notation is um, there's a lot of richness and detail to it, and expresses uh, the same thing as uh, what you would sort of think in your head when you're playing an instrument, but in a, in a way that allows different ways of working with uh, the, the underlying kind of semantic information. Um, there is notation for all kinds of things. Anywhere where there is things to represent, and there are better ways of working with that information than language, I think notation sort of naturally emerged. So one is um, dance. Uh, dance is actually a really interesting example because there's so much sort of range of motion, and it's just kind of like hard to draw uh, like kinesthetic dynamic motion. And so for a long time, there wasn't a great way to write down dance movements. Um, it's not the kind of thing where you have a fixed vocabulary of different kinds of motions that people can do. And so it's it's really hard to write down and describe exactly what you want to do. And then video kind of revolutionized the way that people share and record dance because you can just record what, what someone does and then you can watch it and play it back. Um, I, I imagine that if you talk to really skilled dancers, they have sort of an, an internal vocabulary for kinds of motions, but uh, it, it, it seems like it was hard to write down before they added the video. Um, another example uh, adjacent to that is juggling, where um, I'm not a juggler, but I've, I've read a little bit into this, and there are um, different notations for recording different ways of juggling things. And then um, some notations are better for thinking of like new juggling moves, apparently. And so uh, there was this innovation where a new juggling notation appeared. And then using that notation, people could find like new ways of juggling, which I find I think just super fascinating. It's an interesting analog to like using certain kinds of math notations. Um, you can come up with new ideas and you can compare. And a great example of this is like the Newtonian sort of calculus notation versus the Leibniz calculus notation and what is better for, more effective for working with certain kinds of things. Mm. Yeah, I think we were kind of getting into this earlier in that there's like a, a back and forth between the notations we use, those modes of expression, and then the things that we can think. And you have some really interesting ideas here, just in terms of the perhaps maybe not goal, but like aspirations for what notation could be in terms of allowing us. I think you, you have a quotation here that I pulled out that says notation should be judged by its ability to contribute to and represent previously unthinkable, unexpressible thoughts. Can you tell me just a little bit more about like your your aspirations for what notation could and, and should be in that regard? Yeah, so good notation has a few properties. Um, one is, and this is sort of notation generally, whether you're talking about dance or mathematics or poetry or whatever. Uh, one property is that it should so when you really think about what notation is, um, its job is to kind of bridge between the symbolic abstract world of ideas of whatever domain you're working in and the like the senses and the sensory systems um, that humans have developed over th hundreds of thousands of years of evolution to like be really good at interacting with real world objects. And so uh, as an example, like math notation is about sort of hacking our visual system to uh, visual perceptive system to work with really abstract mathematical ideas, but using our visual sort of muscle. And so if you think about what math, math, good math notation great, 
Um, one element of it is that similar things kind of look similar. So if you have similar ideas, like two similar fractions, um, they, they, they might look similar. Like if you have a bigger number on the bottom, they kind of look similar. Um, another is another property that's desirable is that you be able to sort of mechanically manipulate the notation in a way that translates to um, semantically meaningful manipulation. And so my favorite example of this is multiplying fractions. If you want to multiply fractions without the, this particular way of writing fractions that we use, you would have to do a lot of math or mental arith arithmetic. But because of the way, particular way that we write fractions with numerators and denominators, you can just multiply across the top and the bottom and you get the result. Um, and uh, the, the like sort of dy dx notation and like calculus is another example where you can sort of mechanically move around the symbols and like mathematicians will cringe that you like treat dy as a number, but you can move around the symbols and kind of achieve the outcome that you want. And, and I think that that's the way, all of that is like hacking our, the, the physical metaphors that our brains have learned to reason about the world and using them to reason about abstract objects. Um, the notations that are sort of really good in our society right now are really domain specific and they've been invented manually over hundreds and, th hundreds and thousands of years. Um, but it seems like maybe uh, sort of generative models that we have today are maybe interesting ways of imagining new notations. Um, one way I think you can, as, as you alluded to, uh, that you can measure whether notations are effective or not is that they are kind of, you're offloading some amount of thinking with abstractions onto paper, onto symbols. Um, so the, the brain does what it's good at, which is reason about things in the way that you can reason about physical objects. And then you're kind of hijacking that ability to reason about abstract things. And so one way to measure whether notations are good or not is can you arrive at new conclusions? Can you um, work with new abstractions easily using notations that you couldn't before, which is where this sort of like think previously unthinkable thoughts, uh, I think comes from. Um, and uh, one thing that's great about notation, which is a kind of tool as opposed to like um, agents or machines, is that when people use notations, they sort of learn to internalize it. So um, to move away a little from the math example, I'll take music as, as a different example. Um, when diff different people who play different instruments sort of think about things like chords and chord progressions and keys in very different ways because they're all of them learn sort of different um, kinesthetic embodied feelings of what like a C chord is versus a G chord is. Um, but if you write it down on paper, it's kind of a unifying way of saying every, everyone kind of can visualize what a chord looks like and how to transpose and, and what different measures look like and what times time signatures look like and how they feel. And so it's a way of, it's kind of like a unifying theory of a ways to reason with these abstractions. Um, and it lets you communicate effectively different ideas between musicians. And uh, it's uh, like write down new kinds of phrases and, and expressions, musical expressions that you couldn't before. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it feels worthwhile to try to push the boundaries of how general can these notations be? Can you maybe um, engineer or try to optimize into these notations more of these properties? Um, and, and maybe there are ways of like automatically deriving interesting notations. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I guess when I think about the point of notation as a tool for expression, as a tool for aiding me think and coming to conclusions, just reflecting on like being in school the way I would often take notes by hand. When I'm taking notes on a keyboard, I'm kind of limited by the keys that are available and it's a lot of extra work to do something that isn't like typing a letter out. But if I look at handwritten notes, I'm often 
I mean, I'm I'm writing things in English with, you know, various abbreviations, but then I'm also like explicitly often stepping out of that and drawing things, for example, that just seem like more efficient expressions of what it is that I'm trying to think, what I'm trying to take away from a lecture or or something right. I'm reading. And there's also mm-hmm. sorry, yeah, there's also probably a, a higher level kind of macro thing going on, which is you have this um, sort of extra symbolic language of like how to group and lay out your notes. And so you might circle something, you might underline it. Arrows, a lot of people use arrows to describe relationships. Um, you might place certain things under other things. And so there's notation at the at the sort of micro syntax level of like how you describe, maybe you draw a graph instead of writing the word down, but also at the macro level of how is this visually all organized. Um, and there's a lot of expressivity in that that it just doesn't exist in, in the like world of type to text. Mm. Sure. Yeah, yeah, there's... Um... It's it's interesting, I guess. There's kind of like a, I don't know, the the idea of like designing a new notation is really interesting because I guess it's like, I don't know, there's, there's something to the idea of taking something and creating it in a broader way so that it can be standardized and shared and used by people. And I think that's one of the elements of something that's really valuable. At the same time, um, kind of what I was also getting at was often in our own minds and the ways that we reason about things, we are kind of often inventing our own notations for things. And so like you and I, we probably have our own personal notations for, well, taking notes, things like that. And so um, there is a little bit of like translation inefficiency that could occur when we are trying to go from that to explaining things to one another and yes there's a way in which like a perhaps top-down created notation could fix that but then you're also losing a little bit of like the organic this is something i just kind of created on the fly that just viscerally kind of makes sense to me and so one thing I wonder about is how do you capture the best of both worlds in that regard? How do I get something that is both more communicable um, that I can explain to you easily, but then also has that very immediate, like, I just look at it and it makes sense to me and I don't have to think about it. I think all notations, all sort of popular notations in use today actually has, solves for this in very similar ways, which is that there is a base set of um vocabulary symbols. So in math, it's things like Greek letters, Latin letters, particular kinds of, of symbols that are available to you on a keyboard or in LaTeX. Um, and there are sort of standard things that they mean, but if you invent a new idea, you can give it a new symbol. Um, and and if you're nice, uh, you, you pick a symbol that's not overloaded with so many meanings already. Um, but but in, in math, you can, there, there are symbols with existing connotations, but you can assemble the the base parts to create something new that eventually can become recognized in music too, especially in a lot of like avant-garde modern music. Uh, there are all kinds of like crazy symbols that people, um, people put into music and, and using words and the symbols that kind of try to express things that don't have a well-defined notation for There's a great uh, Twitter account called threatening music notation, which you might've seen, which is just like a record of like crazy, insane notations that composers have written into their music to try to communicate um, what they want the, the players to do. Um, and none of this is standard music notation, but you can, they're, they're using the sort of established vocabulary parts, things like a tie connecting two notes or like a gliss looking symbol or 
um, notes with an X instead of a, of a little like oval head. Um, and they, they using these like little vocabulary symbols, they can try to communicate something. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess you're right that there's already ways in which this is solved. So when you, when you wrote this post, I know that you were kind of thinking of at first um, sort of workflows for creative work that meld in your words, the, the best of human intuition and machine intelligence, and that you think inventing better notations can contribute far more than automated tools to our effective intelligence. And I'm wondering if you can perhaps elaborate on those thoughts a little bit and just how you think about the, the possibilities and opportunities for expanding our intelligence, perhaps both with notations, but then also with with machine intelligence and, and automated systems. Yeah. One way to frame this that I like is a lot of people are thinking about, especially with more, more general kind of reasoning systems like language models, a lot of people are thinking about how do we use language to improve computers? Um, and that's a very valiant goal and that's very useful. But a thing that I think people are less thinking about is how do we use um, computer models of language to improve language itself. So like, ideally, the benefit should go both sides. And one way to look at a lot of what I'm thinking about is how do you use language models to improve language itself? Um, as a byproduct of training a language model, you learn a kind of continuous mathematical representation of language. And maybe that's not just a byproduct. Maybe that's like a, uh, a way to give uh, language more embodiment. And so I talked a lot earlier about um, the, the fact that physical objects have physical affordances that let us sort of immediately grok what they're for and what they're used by. Um, physical objects have hints that tell us what they're made of, their attributes, and then what we can do with them. And ideally, I think um, one great way to work with ideas would be that you can kind of see them as objects laid out on a table. And arguments look one particular way, claims look one particular way, maybe um, one if uh, an object, an idea, is talking about a particular topic that, that's like a particular shade of blue or something. And then you can kind of assemble an argument or an essay by like stacking these things on top of each other like Lego bricks. And then arguments that fit together sort of like have affordances that fit together like Lego bricks. And then things that don't tend to like disagree by literally not fitting together. And uh, this is a kind of now like very concrete notation um, or like a physical embodiment of, of these ideas. But you can, it, it seemed to me like maybe of from the sort of quantitative understanding that these language models develop for ideas and text, you might be able to derive something much closer to this than written text, where instead of working with words, a string of words that you have to stare at, and then you put it into your head, and then you serialize back out, maybe you can develop uh, more direct manipulation interfaces um, to ideas. Mm. Yeah. I remember a demo. I can't remember if it was yours or I think it might have been Matthew Shu who like posted this really neat demo of like you um, you were kind of hinting at this idea, but where you have a sentence and then you can take a particular word and sort of drag it around a color wheel and get different words that are the same in meaning, but slightly different in, in hue or, or personality almost. Um and I, I think that's kind of another version, like a micro version of that operations on language that you were talking yes. about earlier, um, yeah. this time on a specific word. 
Yeah, so both Matthew and I have explored versions of this idea. I've done it at the sentence level. He's done it at the word level. Um, one, so I can get into the specifics of the, the implementation um, in a bit. But one uh, sort of another way of looking at uh, this like machine intelligence versus human intelligence thing is uh, agents versus tools. So uh, because of the the like the interface that language models happen to have with us, which is natural language input and output, and this sort of like turn-based interaction, um, I think a lot of people are inclined to build interfaces on top of language models that directly adopt that, where I give it some text input and then generate some text output. Um, and there, there are variants of this. You can have input not be just text, but text and images, and it would be text and images or actions even. But it's still fundamentally treating this um, sort of like soft reasoning black box as a black box. It's like a function. You put stuff into it and you get stuff out of it. And it, it treats it as kind of an agent. And when you treat something as an agent, um, one problem is that humans tend to kind of anthropomorphize it maybe more than they should. But another is that you tend to, um, you, you tend to blame um, the like lack of control on yourself, the user, and imbue the agent with kind of a sense of like its own intent. So uh, an example that I use a lot is like, imagine that color pickers are never invented and all existed in the world, all that exists in the world were like palettes of colors. And one day someone invented a way to choose and discover new colors. And the way you use this color picker is that there's this black box, this agent, and you talk to it and you describe the color that you want. And you describe like, I want the color that describes the warmth of a sunset and it gives you a shade of orange. And you're like, oh, this isn't really exactly what I was thinking, but I guess it's close enough. And eventually what you might discover is that you start thinking, oh, maybe this color picker has its own sense and its own experience of what the world is like. And it wants to, it wants me to, wants me to use this shade of orange. And, um, and that's, if you, like, given what we have today, it's kind of silly, right? Like, maybe you, there's benefits to sort of creative benefits to having this conversational interface to color picking. But, but, but what you really want is just like a color picker with a gradient. And you just like point out the color that you want. And you can, you can build this, um, more precise, more controllable color picker interface because you have a quantitative model of the range of colors can be represented and you can um, develop a kind of vocabulary for how to move around in the space with things like color and hue and saturation and uh, using all of these, uh, both the mathematics that let you describe the space and the concepts like color and saturation that let you move around in the space in a structured way, you can develop a really precise way to move around to control, um, move around in this in this sort of latent space of colors, if you will, um, that obviates the need for like an agent. And uh, the agent would be cool if you really do want to brainstorm new colors. But in, in a lot of cases, you just want to like pick a color and a color picker is a better way. Um, in the like to, to adopt this to the language model world, a lot of people are using the, the agent model. And what happens to the agent model is if the agent messes up or says something you don't like, you, you might see that as, oh, the agent gave me an idea that, that maybe it was its own idea. But really, there's there's nothing like that. It's just like a bunch of numbers, right? Like, and, and maybe maybe the right way or a, or maybe that's a little too strong, a different way to work with this that might be amenable to different use cases than the agent model uh, might be to provide um, a structured kind of space of ideas, a latent space of ideas, and then to give people the tools to move around in really precise and structured ways. And so concretely what that, what that becomes is you have some text and you have different kind of like brushes or tools that you can apply to it. Maybe you have a brush that's like, here's an idea, give me some examples. Or an idea that's like, here's an idea, shorten it or lengthen it or, or summarize it or or make it a little more aggressive or provide a skeptical take on this one. Um, and it that uh, in this kind of model, there is no question 
who is in control and whether the, this tool has any agency. It doesn't have any agency. You're driving it. It doesn't mean you lose intelligence. There's a, still the same kind of like language model understanding that you're using, but rather than um, communicating with this tool through this narrow pipe of language, natural language instructions, you are now sort of fully precisely exploring the space. And I think that alternative way of, of using models to um, build like precise controlled um, direct interfaces to, to ideas is, is underexplored and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is diving a little bit into some of the ideas and, and some of your other blog posts, like thoughts at the boundary between machine and mind. And I do find it interesting just reflecting on the fact that prompt engineering is such a ubiquitous and difficult thing to do. There's an inefficiency there. The fact that to get large language models to do like addition as um, a friend of mine kind of demonstrated in a recent paper, they introduced this new mode of prompting called algorithmic prompting. And it's like, you know, you're, you're doing addition, subtraction, multiplication, very simple things for a large language model, but you have to do a lot of engineering there. And just the fact that you have to kind of abuse language, abuse the way in which you're representing the idea um, I've, I've chosen the term abuse very intentionally there um, in order to get that idea across to the model just really says something about that, that as you're talking about that interface between the human and between the AI system that you're trying to interact with and trying to get something out of. Yeah, the uh, prompting is a very, very indirect way of, of trying to communicate the model. Direct manipulation in latent space is a different one. I think they're suited to different um, different use cases um, or different needs. Um, a lot of I get a lot of my inspiration from looking at interfaces, both hardware and software interfaces for music production. Because um, music is one where we've spent so much money and time and, and creativity trying to build interfaces that let us traverse this latent space in an effective way. Um, and, and some directions... Some directions in this space are obviously interpretable, like sound and gain. Others are a little more, more strange, um, like timbre of an instrument. How do you how do you sort of parameterize that? And so, one interesting example of this divide between like indirect and direct is um, if you have like a vocalizer or a synthesizer. Um, sometimes you want to like record your own voice or record a real sound and put it into the machine. But then once you put it in, you can manipulate it using these dials. And so, to me, the the metaphor that's there is. Sometimes direct prompting is good because you want to specify something pretty specific, and that gives you a good starting point. Um, and the, the, the space of all possible ideas is so large that you can't possibly like navigate there smoothly. And so in the same way that you might record some initial sound sample into, into your kind of project, you can prompt engineer to like your starting place. But then once you're somewhere in the neighborhood, you don't want to have to like tell the machine, please make this louder, or please make this quieter, or, or more smooth, or more chill, or whatever. You want... Um, like a hundred little dials for some way to more effectively move around and precisely dial in and sort of interactively in real time, explore exactly what kind of vibe do you want? What kind of sound do you want? And I think it's similar in um, whether you're talking about like image generation models or text, you don't want to um, iterate with text all the way. Maybe you start with something that gets you in the neighborhood and then, and then you can move more directly um, through this, this space of possible generations. Yeah. I want to pop up a level in abstraction here and the way we're thinking about this. So um, I pulled a quotation from your article where you say interfaces and notations form the vocabulary humans and machines must use to stay mutually aligned. And I think this kind of contributes to 
the reason you think AI interface design is an AI alignment problem, which is which is really interesting. And I want to spend a second on that because one one thing that this brought up for me is the role of the concepts that we use to think about the world, the ways that we sort of chop up the world in our mind. And then on the other side of the boundary, the way not to anthropomorphize too much, but, you know, just to think about the way that machines might divvy up the world. Um, So somebody else I had on the podcast some time ago, Bean Kim, has a lot of interesting ideas on like machine learning interpretability and thinking about it as this idea of developing a language for humans and machines to interact with one another. And some of the ways she's approached this have been on investigations into things like concept-based interpretability. So like her TCAV work was sort of exploring, let me um, sort of extract the intermediate representations that a neural network, like a confnet, has in its intermediate layers, and then use some mathematical techniques to figure out, okay, what kind of human concept is this representing so that the human can then understand what the AI model is doing. And then for some of this AI interface design, there's almost the the reverse basis transformation of how do I most efficiently take the concept that is in my mind and then get it into this machine understandable form. Um, And so I'm, I'm sort of curious just how you think about that role of concepts in general and like interpretability in terms of interfaces and and notations for humans and machines interacting? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think there's two, um, two thoughts that come to mind. One is more around concepts, which aligns a lot with what you said. And the other is around control. Um, Control I've spent a little more time thinking about, but this idea of like a shared vocabulary I think is interesting. In in your example case, the the task was more taking the concept that the machine has learned and trying to translate them into human space. But if you, I think especially as you build, like when you, when you work with a synthesizer with a hundred dials, um, you you're not necessarily like there's no sense in which the computer is learning new concepts per se. But it's also not really like the human is imposing, you know, the, the vocabulary that humans have in in language for for music is so restricted that you can't. You can't use language language to just communicate what you want. So there's something in between where we there's a vocabulary that emerges at the intersection of like the interface that we build to control these things and how the machine processes them and how the human hears them. And sort of over time, as you work with digital instruments like the electronic instruments like this, you develop a sense of this style kind of does this thing, this this lever kind of does this thing. And you, it's a vocabulary that emerges at the intersection of how people use these things and how the, how the, the mechanics of the, in this case, the audio generation model itself. And uh, in the same way, I think when you, in my experience in sort of messing with latent space models of language, latent variable language models, there is something similar where you can define attribute vectors that model human space of things, but, but then also you can find latent vectors that kind of do things that... Um, Maybe you intended for it to be one thing, but it also adjusts something else. And then so I think hopefully as you as I dig more deeper into this, um, there will emerge this sort of like vocabulary that is somewhere in between like just what the model has learned and just what I want to control. And I think this idea of like trying to find a shared um, it's kind of basis vector space or shared set of like vocabulary of abstractions is interesting. Um, I imagine that in the when you look at things like what, what concepts a confident has learned, 
Some of them can obviously be translated to things like stripes or vertical lines or whatever, and other others are probably a little harder to describe. But you can look at it, and a human can kind of learn over time to grok what this means because it is a kind of abstraction. It's just we, we might not have the perfect word for it, and I think it's some other language. Um, on the on the control side, on the alignment side, um, it comes back a little bit to what I spoke to earlier around like language is such just such a narrow pipe, and humans are I think much better at sort of like playing the the warmer, colder game of like, is this closer to what I want and is this not what I want, as opposed to just precisely describing in one shot what you want. And um, it, it seems like it's more friendly to the way that the human body works to like move things around in physical space. It seems like it's easier to sort of query for what we want. And so more direct manipulation interfaces, I think, uh, just offer more control and more control, uh, easier control, easier to learn control, I think is overall better for building AI systems that are better aligned. That sounds right to me. Yeah. Another thing that I was sort of thinking about is we're talking a lot at this boundary between the human and the machine and kind of stepping away from that boundary a little bit to the concepts itself, the concepts themselves, um, sort of that we were sort of hinting at earlier. I mean, when you think about like human concepts in general, I think there's there's an interesting aspect to like there's a lot that we can express in language, and this is also kind of getting to your notations as a plausible a plausible mechanism to express previously unexpressible ideas or thoughts. And at the same time, though, there is something to like. I think there are ideas we have experience of the world experiences of the world that feel pretty inexpressible, and I do wonder how far you can get with things like notation in terms of uncovering those rocks as it were. That's a good question. Um, I sometimes I talk to some friends about like, what are the different, what, what can models learn um, in terms of uh, different qualities of writing? So I work a lot with language models, um, latent variable language models and, uh, I had an email exchange earlier today about can you teach a model a particular can can, can you find a direction in latent space that corresponds to like a particular style of writing a particular author and it seems to me like um, there's a few things that go into this but but uh, maybe if you want to like try to express something that uh, like a skilled author can take an idea that seems inexpressible and, and write a poem or write an essay that that tries to express it and maybe you can get an indirect sense of it. And it seems to me like there is, um, what they're trying to do is kind of approximate the, uh, apologies for leading too much into the latent space metaphor, but approximate the like point in latent space that this feeling is, by sort of giving you as many ways as possible of arriving to this place. Um, and when I think about like, how might you, uh, use these kind of more direct manipulation models, um, to the model's representation to express sort of unexpressible things. Um, I think a lot of that expressivity maybe, expressivity maybe comes from this like continuous domain of representation where um, maybe you can use words to get around this, but words are hard to use because they're, they're kind of these discrete chunks of information where um, if you want to express an emotion, maybe you can sort of find and combine the right flavors and the right authors that you like or the right kind of stories and, and try to, converge sort of continuously by getting closer or further from different things to try to find the the like 
the point in the space that the most close response to it. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It, it does seem like there are more efficient, intuitive ways to kind of navigate that boundary around the space of ideas. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit more about your current work. You've been mentioning latent space models, and you also kind of mentioned in this article um, a big focus of your current work on prototyping ways to reify ideas and thoughts into software objects. Could you tell me a little bit about some of the specific work and kind of thinking you have going on around that right now? Yeah, sure. So the edge of this is still a little bit fuzzy, and so I'll I'll sort of bump bump against the, the fuzziness. But the the core of it is I have a sort of a transformer language model that has a well defined latent space, um, and so I can put in some text, turn it into an embedding, and then I can decode that embedding and reconstruct the text back out of it in such a way where the embedding space has sort of meaningful directions for things like low level features like length and structure. And um, maybe things like tone and positivity and negativity, but also like topics. Like you could take a sentence about cupcakes and move it in a particular direction and it'll say the same thing, but about black holes or something. Um, and uh, a lot of, on the model side, a lot of what I've been doing is studying the behavior of this, these spaces. So things like what kinds of things can you express in a, in a latent space? Like can you express um, the relationship between like an idea and examples of that idea or like disagreement to an idea or logical entanglement. Like what happens after this? Can you find directions in the latent space that correspond to that? Um, and studying like things like scaling behavior. Um, and, and the model itself is interesting, but the interface question, which is sort of the dual to the model side in my work is once you have this space, what are the right, um, what are the right set of like interface primitives to let people like explore this and use this in effective ways. And so one sort of nugget of an idea that I've been messing around with is like, uh, how do you, in the way that in, in math, you have these like symbols that are kind of vocabulary units of, for ideas, and then you do operations on them. And so what if in text space also, you can have like a paragraph and then you can like do an operation on it to like get a new paragraph. And then in the same way that like in Excel, you start with a bunch of numbers and you can have, you, you work with operations and numbers to derive new numbers. And then you kind of for write a document by um, running functions over these numbers. Uh, a language model or movement in latent space is a kind of operation on a, on a text. And so maybe you start with some premise and then you can apply a bunch of operations to, to arrive at a conclusion. Um, so the, the, the sort of modeling side, the core of my work is I have this latent space language model. And then a lot of the like imagineering is like, uh, what kinds of interfaces are useful for really using this in you know, real-world use cases. The most obvious use case, um, which I think is a little bit boring, but the most obvious one is things like creative writing, where you can take a paragraph or, or, or a sentence and make it um, make it more sound more like Tolkien or make it sound more about space or something like that. But uh, I am really interested in pushing this work more into the domain of like um, kind of reasoning for lack of a better word, although although I don't know if that word is appropriate here, but um, if you can express things like disagreement or skepticism, um, can you uh, can you take these sort of like vector representations and then turn them into um, real things that you can touch and move around on screen and they have kind of like a, a spatial metaphor uh, where you can say, this is like the relationship between things that are um, things that are for this argument and against this argument and, and what kind of interesting interfaces can you build when you have uh, like object representations of ideas um, 
that with, with like specific properties that you can express uh, without having to like read words. That's really interesting. One other thing that kind of struck me because I was thinking along that argument direction as well is like, could you tinker around with representations of like the strength or weakness of a particular argument for or against something and kind of exploring that space as well? Yeah. On the more out there side of things, um, eventually I think the right way to, this is a really strong claim, but eventually I think that the right way to work with our right way to work with ideas is that you don't really want to work in this domain of like chicken scratches on ink and paper at all. You want ideas that are just like, like things that you can hold um, in the way that you can hold like, like a stuffed animal in your hand. Uh, you want to be able to hold ideas and different ideas with different properties should feel different. And so if you're holding um, a sentence about rockets, it, it should feel similar to the sentence about like black holes, but very different from a sentence about like pizza or something. Um, and, and more, maybe more usefully, uh, as, as I mentioned previously, two arguments that sort of have similar reasons should fit together, like like a bricks or something. And you can expand that to think about, well, what you're doing when you're writing an essay or reasoning through an argument is like constructing a chain of um, chain of thoughts that fit together. Maybe you can like build an essay in this kind of um, wild embodied thought universe by like taking the pieces, the physical pieces that represent different ideas and like assembling them and building like a Lego tower out of it. And then you can look at like, oh, this is a strong argument because it has like four legs and each of these legs represent like chains of thought that represent steps of reasoning. And then you can look at, look at an essay and say, oh, this essay is kind of weird because it's like kind of not really going anywhere. It's just kind of spinning in circles, but you can see that in, in, in reality. And uh, it seems like when I, when I talk about this phrase of um, like representations, knowledge representations, representation for thought, um, I'm very specifically referring to right now we represent thought as sort of like these ideas serialized into, into words on a page. But if you can turn them into these vectors and then map them into other modalities like vision or texture or objects or like 3D printed um, like little blobs or whatever, um, you can build representations that maybe preserve the underlying semantic information, but make it easier for our like human senses to work more directly with it. Um, that like really take advantage of the things that humans are good at, which is like spatial awareness and feeling things and texture. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a really beautiful vision for what language and the and the idea could be. And there's this kind of like recursive nature about what you're getting at here. Like when I as a human put things into language, as you said, there are ways in which I try to express things about the world and the affordances I have with the world, the fact that I can take this pencil around and manipulate it in space and on the fly kind of generate and describe like a policy for, for working with it. There's, there's sort of like this input into the space of language, but then when you get to the space of language itself, what you're kind of getting at is now there's so many different ways I can mold it, but bringing in that, that embodiment, that set of affordances that we previously didn't have really kind of expands the scope of what you can kind of bring into and and extract out of as you're saying that that space of ideas that kind of sort of i guess the way you you always think about this like dichotomy between the world of ideas and like the physical empirical world and it's an interesting thought of 
how how it morphs when you try to bring those two closer together. Yeah, a, a more direct way to talk about this maybe is that um, going back to the math notation thing, math notation is a way to take this abstract world and try to mold it into a form that that takes better advantage of vision. Um, but more generally, with with um, things like language models and generative models, you can um, take any sort of domain of abstract ideas and um, and turn it into a bag of latent variables, and then you can look at some concrete thing like blobs made with different materials that are 3D printed or something, and then you can map the latent variables, so to speak, of that that object, the shape and the size and the texture, and then you can kind of like stitch them together, and you can have um, you can have physical models of different semantic properties of this like abstract thing that you're working with. Um, and it's a way of constructing like concrete notation uh, that, that might let you work with, uh, that lets you work with ideas more directly. And it's just, I think in general, like more humane um, and be able to do kind of fun things like, like constructing an argument by literally building a tower. Yeah. I, I like that particular idea a lot. I think this might be a good place to expand the scope a little bit. So you had a really interesting article on the long feature of AI. And in the beginning, you make the case that neural nets are a different kind of tool from computers and also elaborate on your idea of of cognitive computing. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're, you're thinking there and perhaps what excites you in particular more broadly than some of the ideas we've been discussing about the advent of, of AI systems. Yeah. So this is where if um, this was not already sci-fi enough, it's going to get very sci-fi. So uh, I think one interesting way to think about the way that we currently run neural nets is that we are like using Turing machines to simulate something that is fundamentally not like in the model of Turing machines. Um, the like, the standard classical sort of model of computing is modeled by this thing, which is a Turing machine, and then it has a set of like things that it can compute. So there's a set of computations, set of functions that it can express, and then like uh, sort of substrates for running that computation. And so in the, in the case of classical computers, it's like the set of all computable functions with, with Turing machines or lambda calculus, and then it's run on different hardware substrates like packing tubes and um, uh, like tape uh, and silicon. And they're they're optimized for running these kinds of like deterministic programs. I think uh, neural nets are a different way of computing things, and it can compute a different set of things. Um, we can run them on existing silicon because we can sort of emulate neural nets uh, these like floating point kind of values with with silicon uh, because of like the things like IEEE uh, floating point representations. But it's not. Uh, it's a kind of poor emulation, I think, in the sense that, like, when you simulate a quantum computer on a classical computer, it's a poor emulation. Um, and to me, you can kind of separate the. There, you can draw two axes um, for the set of like functions that you can compute with a particular like computing paradigm, and the substrates on which you do that computation. And so, right now, we have one sort of winning substrate, which is silicon integrated circuits, and then you have. Uh, we have like mostly one kind of computation, which is uh, like classical Turing machine computation. But we have hints of two others. We have like quantum computing, which is like a whole different set of computable functions. And then we have uh, neural networks, which in, in this blog post, I give this cheesy name of, I think, cognitive computing or something. But it's just like different different um, 
classes of like things that you can compute. Um, you can emulate any kind of computation on any other kind of computation. Like our brain emulates Turing machines. We just like, look at numbers and do math on them. But that's not really what it's good at. What it's really good at is like recognizing things visually and hearing things um, and perceiving things. And so the thought experiment that I, get, I sort of invite people to engage in here is if you decouple the like substrate from the kinds of things you can compute and imagine like in quantum computing, people are searching for uh, more efficient substrates to do quantum computing on because the, you run into these barriers of emulation really quickly. In neural networks, um, it seems like we run into barriers less, but but obviously there's still a lot of energy being spent on like optimizing the hardware uh, and, and things like sort of um, neural chips. And you can imagine an interesting kind of future where maybe we'll discover other kinds of um, computation. Um, and you have this like ever-expanding set in both ways in like the kinds of substrates that you can run computation on and the, the set of um, all the different kinds of computation and the different sets of problems that they can solve. And so in the future, like right now, we sort of model every problem. It's like a classical computing problem and you like write a little like machine that can run on a true machine and then run it on silicon. But in the future, you can imagine uh, sort of really heterogeneous computing kind of world where you have a problem, you try to find like what kind of computing paradigm can you best express the solution to this problem in? And then you like pick the substrate that is best at running that kind of program, and then you run it. And then you have this, uh, I think, really interesting um, world of different kinds of computers that do totally different kinds of computation on, on the various different set of um, materials and substrates. And that this is really interesting to me because it uh, means that we're not even uh, we're, we're not even close to like maxing out what does like computing really mean? Um, and you can see a future where like computers are not just this thing with with like silicon circuits inside. They're just like arbitrary things that can sort of do arbitrary tasks, and uh, we we just like farm out different tasks to them depending on what what they're good at. I think what you're getting at here is a more expansive version of an idea that I think I've heard articulated in a lot of different ways, and I think that's more specifically about the space of machine learning and hardware. So I don't know if, if you've read this particular article, but Sarah Hooker wrote The Hardware Lottery some time ago. And for anyone who might be listening and kind of unfamiliar, the basic idea is that the algorithms, the ML algorithms that kind of won the day, as it were, didn't win necessarily by virtue of their just being the best ideas, but they happened to be a great fit for available hardware. So transformers really took and exploited the parallelism available with GPUs. And as a result, they kind of became the workhorse of everything. And there's this argument there that, well, if we have a more heterogeneous set of hardware backends that are easily available to use, then you can expand the space and let ideas, let algorithms play on the field without that kind of underlying bias, because now there are different types of a field to play on. And there are, I think there are people kind of chasing that down right now. So you mentioned there's a lot of work on AI accelerators, and that's kind of the space that that I'm working in right now. And there's a really interesting startup called Modular that I think is kind of trying to bridge this and that they're building like compiler and intermediate infrastructure where they're like, let's figure out how people can work from a top-level framework like PyTorch, like TensorFlow, and just plug in 
to different hardware backends without having to do very much work, because right now that is a really difficult thing to do. And so I think when when that problem gets solved, we are probably going to have a more limited version of the vision you're describing here. And I think even that presents some pretty exciting opportunities for, for the AI space. Yeah, I really like that idea of you you write a single program that can farm out different kinds of tasks, different kinds of accelerators. You, you, we have this in a limited form with CPUs and GPUs, but um, but I, I like the idea of like with maybe even at a more granular level, like this kind of operation is this good, really good on, on the accelerator. That requires also kind of like um, Apple's really good at this, where on their like latest laptops, if you want to do video encoding, use a totally different part of the chip. Then, then if you just like run normal Python code, then when you run machine learning code, there's this whole other like neural accelerator. Um, and uh, I've heard this phrase or this this saying where like a lot of modern silicon engineering is like trying to keep as many parts of the chip off as possible um, all the time. And uh, it seems like the, the, that's that's like pretty well aligned with this uh, world of like really heterogeneous hardware backends. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's. Um... That's interesting. I didn't know that about Apple's chips, but that seems like a really interesting way of going about it. I think this would be a good time to kind of pivot into more just personal interests and, you know, talking more about who Linus is as a person beyond all of the projects and the blog posting. Um, I remember looking through one of your personal search indexes and seeing a lot of Taylor Swift, which made me happy to see. And I know that you have a particular project. Um 1989.style for guessing Taylor Swift lyrics. And I was disappointed to see that there weren't any Midnight songs in there. And I was well, going to go this is and a like well known open issue. GitHub issue. I was going to go submit an issue and then I saw that somebody had already done it. Yeah. Um, you know, she just keeps writing those songs and I need to <laughs> keep, keep them updated. Um, yeah. I, uh, I don't think I've written this anywhere, but. I, um, so I'm an immigrant. I moved here from Korea when mm-hmm. I was in um, elementary school and Taylor Swift was, I think the first like American pop artist that I ever listened to when I moved here. Oh, wow. Um, and it, I don't know if it's just like, that was the first one. So I got hooked or, or, I mean, obviously she's an amazing songwriter as well, but mm-hmm. that since then I've been, I've been a big fan, um, and gone to shows and, and bought all the, you know, vinyl and CDs and things like that, but, mm-hmm. uh, big fan, um, I like to talk about it a lot. Did you and, manage uh, to uh, get yeah. tickets to her to her next year? So this is a this is a painful. This is a sad story for that I'm now like digging up. Well, yeah. Well, I had a particularly tragic time because I was actually so they have this whole ticketing system where if you like bought tickets in the past or had a line, it's a whole whole thing. Um, and so I was in the line and I was like gonna get my 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 slot. And um, this is really in the weeds, but when you sign up, you get like a little code sent to your phone that mm-hmm. you can use to buy the tickets to prove you're not a bot. Um, my phone ate the code. As I'm like, I, I got the text in the morning and then I was like, okay, I'm going to save this text so I can use it at night. And then I went to the my um, messages app uh, when I like got through in the line to the front of the queue and the message was just gone. Oh no. And so, uh, so I just, I just couldn't get anything. And I was like, I guess I'm going to have to get it at the like general ticket sale. Because I couldn't get it in the like special for fan sale, mm-hmm. and then they canceled the general ticket sale, of course, because they got they sold that ran out of inventory, mm-hmm. and so I might try to buy it off of someone. But um, sad tale. Yeah, I'm I'm also in a sticky situation with this. I 
I didn't have the foresight to try to get in on the pre-sale. I think I uh, possibly could have, but I was just going to wait for the general sale. And I mean, no dice. It's pretty brutal. Yeah. yeah. Um, it but. seems like Midnight's was just like a very polarizing album. I'm curious how you responded to it. It's this way every time. Uh, yeah, I think. that's fair. Well, folklore and evermore, I think, were kind of exceptions, but because the, they're a little more more um, indie and they were kind of more cohesive. But yeah, um, she likes to experiment, right? Mm-hmm. And every album is kind of an experiment, and and people warm up to it over time. Uh, mm-hmm. This happens at the small scale. Like first time I listened to it, I was like, "That's kind of weird," and then now it's, I think, it's great. Um, not the best, but but really good. And uh, I think over time, people warm up to it as like people adopt to her new style. But yeah, like if if she may, kept making the same kind of songs that she made in five years ago, it would not be that interesting. That's true. Yeah, I, I think I had a similar experience to you. Like the first time I listened to it, I was like having honestly a little bit of trouble telling the songs apart from one another when you just kind of listen to it the full way. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think after like two or three or four more listens, though, I definitely started appreciating it a lot. It's like um, I, I ended up having to like write down what i was thinking about this and kind of turned that into a blog post but there's there was like a a very interesting quality to it of like i mean the sound of it is very intentional even if i didn't like the production all the time but it's very much like in line with a lot of the work she's done and so there's intentional like okay here's kind of the way i do songs and so you've got this sort of like blank canvas of sound and I think that at that point, you know, you're just kind of like, well, I'm familiar with the music itself. Maybe you don't love it, but it's just kind of there. And then what she's painting on it, though, the actual lyrics feels a lot more interesting from that perspective. I think as a consumer of of these things, um, really great artists have a lot more control over their craft um, than I think consumers realize or even can perceive. Um, and so like, if you have a really great writer, they might slave over every little word and detail in, in a way that that's really intentional and it's there, but, but if, um, you're just reading it, you might not notice. And I think it's similar with, with great artists that have been, that have been doing this for a long time, musical artists that have been doing this for a long time, every little backing track and balance and instrument and, and, and word has been slaved over. And, uh, it's. When you, when you sort of think about it that way, you sit there and you're like, okay, every every little sound that I'm hearing, even the ones that I don't really like right now, they're like very intentional choices. And so, so like, why are they there? What are they contributing to the song? It's an interesting way to listen to it. Yeah, I think that's the case with like a master of pretty much any craft, right? Like you look at an expert software craftsman, the level of control they're able to exert. I watch sometimes videos of like incredible violinists, you know, like Hilary Hahn has always been one of my favorites. And just the control she's able to exert over every facet of what's coming out of her violin. Um, I mean, you know, I'm kind of like an amateur. And so for me, it's just like, well, that's, that's what's coming out with, you know, the way that I, I, I like take my bow across the string. Like it might be what I want. It might not be, but just the way that she's able to, it's, it's like kind of plucking a sound out of the heavens and like, you know, producing it with your, your violin. And there's something Amazing just to like watch somebody be able to do that, but then also taking that a step further. And as you said, thinking about like, what are, what are the decisions they're making? Why is that the case? I think there's a lot of depth to it. Yeah. I think this like trait uh, or this like sign of mastery or virtuosity where you have 
this like incredible range of expressivity that you can just keep going into and the learning curve extends forever into infinity. Um, I think is a, to, to bring it back to interfaces stuff, I think is a really great sign of good interfaces. Um, there's a great talk by Rich Hickey, the creator of um, Clojure, where he talks about, he, he compares, he talks about this sort of like, um, like learning curve fetish that people have in the programming language community and broad, broadly in tech where people are like, this is so easy to learn. You can learn it in five minutes. And, and uh, that's kind of like selling like Guitar Hero. Like Guitar Hero is good, but like, it's not, um, you can't like master it in the way that you can master the violin. Um, and if, if you are building creative tools, I think it's worth thinking about, obviously the learning curve is, is important. It shouldn't be needlessly difficult to learn, but there is value in sacrificing a little bit of like that, like learn it in five minutes-ness to build something that where the, the like real true kind of virtuosity can be attained and you can kind of keep learning, learning, learning forever and never really like run out of how much you can like learn to and lean into the craft. If you think about, it's a concrete example, like writing. Um, it's really weird to think about like, what's this virtuosity? Like it, it, when you're, if you're a painter, you can become a master of, of oil painting and you have these like tools, like the brush and the canvas that sort of really directly let you manipulate the, the object, the artifact that you're producing. If you're an expert writer, um, all of your mastery is in your mind. You're, there's no sense in which you like master the typewriter, right? Like it's, it's just, that's not where the craft is taking place. The craft is in your head. Um, but if you're building sort of a, like a next generation writing tool, what would it mean to like be able to exercise that virtuosity in the like things that you do with your hands, I think is a really interesting thought. Yeah, that's fascinating. And there is something to both, both in the mechanical and the intellectual sense kind of pointing back to the learning curve and the interfaces, something that you're working with might have a slightly more resistant interface, at least to a beginner, in terms of getting a grip around it and learning how to use it. I like I had this experience with tools for editing podcasts, audio, um, and figuring all of that out. And sometimes the tool that presents itself as really intuitive and easy is just fundamentally not a good tool and really inefficient to use, as you discover. And then the one that takes a little bit more of a learning curve, eventually you can you can mold it into your own and you become so much more efficient with it. And I think people have this experience using like Vim and Emacs and you know all the different tools that they that they have for coding as well. Um, and that you kind of have to scale that initially, but then as you as you kind of mold yourself around what the interface is offering then it becomes such an efficient set of tools to kind of hack away at whatever you're doing. Yeah, Vim is a great example. I think Vim is like, the learning curve in Vim is a little bit too brutal. Like you should at least let the user get out of the editor. But uh, but it's a great example of like, you learn a totally different way to think about, like when you learn to play the piano, you learn a totally different way to think about chords and harmonies. Um, and when you learn Vim, you learn a different way to move around with text and, and how you edit text. And and each of these sort of come up, come with like, like a different sense of like what the material you're working with is, right? Like in piano, you get this really visual rep the representation of intervals and notes and tones and like what chords look like. Like, because I learned to play music on the piano, when I think of a chord, I think of like, what are, what are my fingers doing on the piano? But um, I've also learned guitar a little bit and the guitar has a whole different sense of like what chords are if you're in vim the way you edit text is you think of like lines and spaces and moving things around and jumping around in the editor and, and maybe different other different kinds of editors will teach you sort of different other different abstractions that make text feel like a different kind of material yeah that's really interesting giving us a, a smooth segue into 
some other ideas. You, along with the projects that you work on, you do a lot of writing, and we've talked about a number of your blog posts. In addition to some of your writing on things we discussed, you also have written a few stories. I'm curious if there's a particular story or any particular stories that you've written that feel especially meaningful to you. A lot of my, the, so the the flash fiction writing was like a um, outgrowth of the pandemic. I was locked into my house and I read a lot of Teching and other other sci-fi writers. Um, and I was like, I should try my hand at this. Uh, and uh, I don't do it a lot, but but I think it's an inter- it's just a totally different way of communicating an idea. And sometimes, rather than just say over and over and over, like, what if you could, you know manipulate your thoughts with the hands or whatever you just tell a story where this thing is like a real thing that exists you paint this alternate reality and it's a better way to communicate it i think in terms of like my favorite the i like a lot of my like favorite stories both to read and, and to think about have to do with like like thinking either very far out or in some like other like magical realism alternate universe um how are people interacting with knowledge um and so uh in um I guess there's one called the the Great Library, or the what is it? I'm searching my own blog posts. Um, is it the uh, Forever Library? Is it the oh the Generative Library? There is actually two about libraries. I really like libraries. Um, they're actually both quite good. Well, I, I like them a lot, um, and I don't I don't know if they're any good, but uh, they one is about like preserving knowledge. Um, what does it mean to like preserve knowledge information and and about like these like generation shifts going on in space to preserve knowledge. And the other is about um, a library, a library that's kind of infinite. Uh, there's something about this idea of like an infinite library. So the, the canonical example of this is like um, Borges's uh, library of Babel, but uh, there are different ways of framing this. One is like, so the library of Babel is like, it contains all the books. It's infinite. My framing was more, uh, it's generative. And so you can ask it in a question and it'll like GPT style, it'll like synthesize a whole library full of books with answers to that question. And uh, I like thinking about um, it, it, thinking about these in, in terms of stories frees you from any like real physical constraints. So you can really think about like, what are the unconstrained by any real world um, physics? What are um, some other ways that people could interact with knowledge and information? Yeah, I, I think the the work of fiction is just in general a really interesting medium to explore beyond the limits of what we can actually build, what we can actually create, just the implications, what the world could be if we had some of the things we're trying to build. And I feel like it's also just very important for us to do that, to keep producing that kind of fiction, because I think that we often don't think through the full consequences of what we're creating. So for example... I think in uh, in the paper menagerie, Ken Liu, who I'm actually speaking to in January, has this one story where he explores the implications of, you know, systems that are recommending things to you and making decisions. And then what happens when that seeps into every aspect of your life? So you're literally no longer making any decisions for yourself. And I've I've heard people talk about this type of thing in a way where they're like, it's great, you know, you don't have to think about what it is that you're going to do tomorrow or something. And it makes all these recommendations. And that's just Mm -hmm. like really good. That's progress. And when you when you kind of take that and extend it to its logical conclusion, though, I think what you get is is very, very dystopian. Yeah, I think 
there, there's definitely benefits on like extending into extending the present. I also like to, one of my sort of favorite thought exercises to do is like work backwards from like a very far distant future. And so I like to because I think obsessively about language um, and notations. One thing that I think about a lot is like, what is what does language look like in a thousand years? Which is like a hopelessly far away time that nobody can ever reason anything concrete about. Um, but like language is still going to exist in some form as long as humans exist in some form. Um, it's probably going to be dramatically transformed by computing. Um, it's hopefully going to be better. Like language really hasn't changed much in the last like few thousand years. Like writing emerged a few thousand years ago, six thousand years ago, and we've just like I guess we've like learned how to type stuff. But like otherwise, writing is basically the same. Uh, but it seems like maybe there there are ways that that could accelerate. Um, like one sort of profound thought is like in a thousand years, there's going to be more computing power in silicon than in human brains in the world. Maybe not even a thousand. Maybe like in a hundred. And so how does it change like? How does it change language? How does it change humans interact or write down ideas and, and consume ideas? And if you think from like that completely unconstrained, unhinged version of reality, and let's try to work backwards, you can I think you uh it's a good way to brainstorm, I think, like what uh well like alternate realities are just possible that you can't see by just like incrementally looking next door from like existing versions of languages and notations. Right, right. And you get that, like, what changes would it take for us to actually get there, which is something that kind of helps make it a little bit more concrete, too. Yeah, there's a a lot of my, like, work around languages and notations is inspired by uh, a book called Diaspora by Greg Egan, which, among many, many other really interesting ideas, the book explores um, kind of the, the, like, the evolution of language and how people, one, uh, investigate things like mathematics and sort of these idea spaces with concrete models and simulations. And on the other hand, how like language itself changes when uh, like people out themselves into cyberspace and, and they can like conjure materials uh, out of thin air. Um, That's really fascinating. I think as maybe a next set of thoughts, you've written about your own writing workflow and kind of your perspectives on what good writing looks like you have a specific piece on writing short sentences. And so I guess I'd just love to hear you kind of describe a little bit about your your workflow, but then also sort of what motivates you to write and why you think it's a valuable thing to do. Uh, the second, your second part of the question is, I think, a much more short answer, which is just that, like, I think writing is, I write when I feel like I've talked to enough people and thought through something enough that it's like, concrete in my head there's a particular process that ideas go through where like if i the first time i have an idea it's really soft and fragile and it doesn't really have a form it's just like a bunch of unrelated kind of feelings and and vibes and then as i by talking to more people about it i'm kind of like trying to mold it into different forms and so um even in this conversation there's like ideas that i'm like trying to beta test on you and see how it feels um by talking about it in different ways and over time, I get a sense of here's a good way to describe this idea. Here's a, here's a bad way to describe this idea, and it takes on form. And when it's taken on in a form, I sort of like uh, in the same way that like you like sort of put fire on clay pottery to make it like a concrete thing, and then it's sort of frozen after that time. Writing about it is my way of like sort of once an idea is taken in a form, I sort of freeze it in that that shape, and then it's it's like the concrete um, artifact. And then if I forget about it, I can come back to it later, or, or I can show it to people. And in the process of 
the writing is sort of the final stage of that freezing process. So in the process of writing it, I'll usually end up discovering different ways of making an argument or structuring something that I hadn't thought about before. And all of that, I think, contributes to, it's just another part of the learning process, right? Have ideas and then writing about it ensures that I understand something um, in reality and that I have a good sort of concrete way to conceptualize it and think about it. Um, uh, on, uh, I forget what the first part of your, your question was. More about the process of writing for you. Oh yeah. Um, I think different writers have like very, everyone has very, every writer has very strong opinions about like the, what their writing process is. I think my one bit of strong opinion is that like writing really has no rules. The only, the only objective is to like take whatever is in your head and communicate it as faithfully as possible to, to the other person's head. And it doesn't have to be a one-on-one copy. I think a lot of good writing inspires thoughts in the reader's mind that didn't exist in the writer's mind. Um, but by and large, your goal is like you have something that you want to communicate to the reader. Whatever way you can do that um, is fine. And all of this sort of nonsense that you learn in high school around like beginning, middle, and an end, and like talking sentences and stuff is like it's sort of nominally subservient to that. But there's a lot of good kinds of writing that don't have that structure at all. Um, and so I'll usually, when I try to sit down to write something, I'll, I'll usually have a, a good enough sense of like different ways of describing things. And a lot of my time is spent trying to linearize it in a way that either is a, like an interesting story to read or logically makes sense and kind of like step-by-step grows over time. And all of it, I try to make it so that uh, it it just flows nicely. That's a thing that I've heard people say about writing. Um I read over my writing a lot. I'll usually write a draft. It's like a thousand, two thousand words. And then I'll read over it once in my head. And then I'll read it aloud um, like two or three times. And every time I catch like a spelling mistake or an awkward way to say things. Um, and if you can't read it aloud smoothly, then it's not going to read well in the reader's mind, I think. And so reading aloud a few times, I think, helps. It also helps to make sure that I'm making sense and that um, I'm not saying anything that, that's nonsense. Um, and, then, and then I hit publish. I think that definitely jives with my own workflow just in terms of like you, I mean, there's, there's a way in which writing really forces you to formalize and articulate well, the things that are going on in your mind. And so I can see it's valuable. You kind of have this incremental process of I've expressed this idea to enough people. I've attacked it from enough angles. I feel reasonably certain I have a grip on what's going on here. And then you can finally get to that stage of let me actually put this into words, put it into a story and articulate it in a way that's maybe pedagogical. That's maybe just me kind of spreading out a canvas of ideas for, for other people to come and look at if that's interesting to them. Yeah. I think one habit or urge that I've um, fortunately grown out of is that um, I think early on when I uh, started writing a lot more, I had this need to like cram every single thought that I had into a piece um, to, to make sure that like I've, I've thought all these good thoughts and I need to cram everything in so that the reader can get all of them. And that really doesn't, that does you a disservice or does the writing a disservice because um, the reader's already not going to remember most of the things that you say. They're going to take away like one or two key ideas and cramming a dissonant set of things into a single piece, I think often detracts from the goal of just communicating one idea or one thing very clearly. And so uh, one thing that I've learned to do much better is like recognize when recognize when w- what thing that I'm writing is about and sort of discard other things and, and like uh, kill your babies. So to, as, as they say, 
And then um, a thing that has helped with that is to think of a piece, not as just like a single piece that I'm putting out, but more uh, pieces of part of a larger series of works. But like, I'm going to keep having these ideas and I'm going to change my opinions anyway over time. And so my job is less to like cram every idea that I have into each piece and more to say, here's like the way that my thinking has evolved and the string of posts that I'm writing or essays that I'm writing are just sort of snapshots of interesting things that are on my mind at any given moment. And hopefully over time, they'll form a kind of trail of work or archive that is like a faithful enough representation of the way that I've changed my mind over time. Yeah, for each particular piece, I think audience and purpose is really valuable. And I guess if it's, if there's an another, if there's another idea that is kind of starting to seep in that you really want to explore, but as you said, is creating a little bit of dissonance. I mean, that's something you can always just take and put into its own piece at another yeah. time. Yeah, and definitely. so I think, I think that directedness is really valuable. I think this might be a good place to move into some closing thoughts. And you have a really wonderful piece on proving yourself. And I think that a lot of the ideas in here really hit home. And I think that for people who feel like their work is a really important part of their lives and probably part of their identity as well. I think I, I share that feeling with you. And I think that a lot of people in technology more broadly share that feeling. I think a lot of the ideas in here are really valuable. And so I'd I'd love for you to maybe give a sense of like what you were thinking about when you wrote this piece, kind of how you think about your your work and its value. And just those personal feelings of like imposter syndrome of, of feeling qualified. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was one of the pieces where like there are pieces where you, you like think about something and talk about it for three months and then you write about it over a week. And then this was one where I just like had an idea and then I wrote it over, over like a feverish kind of night and then I published it. The reason I wrote this was that I felt like I was kind of feeling back to an earlier version of me where there was sort of the, bad kind of cognitive dissonance that I feel like people feel, especially when they entered some new um, domain in tech where everyone around you is saying like, oh, you should do what you're passionate about and what you're interested in and like, just like pursue what you, you know, is fun. Uh, but then on the other hand, there's all these um, like metrics and titles and sort of really objective measurements of like how worthy you are. And so when I first came into tech, a lot of my insecurities were about, there are all these people around me that are like, uh, no, not much older than I am who are doing things like, like I do on Hacker News and starting companies. And it's kind of, I think it's, it feels to me like it's taboo to talk about these things, like talk about wanting to do these things, but it's true. And I think it's just kind of lying to ourselves if we, if we shy away from this fact that like we motivate these things and lots of people want to like get on Hacker News or get on Product Hunt or start a company or publish a paper or like whatever it is that the metric around, the people around you are encouraging. And um, to to say that you can just, make yourself not care about them, I think um, is a lie or, or or you're some kind of a saint or something. And so uh, I think, and I think it's it does a disservice to people who are new um, to this community to say, oh, you shouldn't care about those because they, it, it's hard to not care about them. Like that's just the way that people are like implicitly sort of people measure, measure their value. And so what, what this piece talked about was um, I came in and I had this like pressure, just like everybody else, to do these things that a lot of other people are doing, like starting companies or whatever. And um, over time, I kind of like did a lot of them. I chased the goals and I chased the the like virtue signals. And I like got on Hacker News. I published side projects. I like got popular, or whatever. Got followers on Twitter. And 
I'm not really ashamed about that. I think it's just like I there were goals and you know they I did them and um, they are helpful. Like getting on Hacker News is helpful. People will find your writing and it's valuable to have people that are reading your stuff and giving you thoughts. And if you have a side project that goes viral, that means that more people with interesting ideas are going to find you and you're going to have interesting conversations and having a network is helpful. Like all these things are good and useful things and and it's fine to pursue them. And it's it's really emotionally difficult to just like decouple yourself from that. Um, but what I realized when I hit a lot of these things that I wanted was that like actually like all the um, reasons that I could meet these goals, all the projects that I did to get on the front pages of these things, the the things that enable that were not the things that I consciously made to get on the front page of Product Hunter or whatever. They're just things that I made because I thought that were fun. And so I think that the like lesson we should be pushing to people who are new in tech is not to say like, oh, I don't care about like Hacker News or whatever. Um, I think that's just kind of pushes people to hate themselves. I think the the right thing is to say, it's okay to care about them. There are They are helpful. Um, it's helpful to network and it's helpful to get Twitter followers and things like that. But that the right way to pursue them is to just build the thing that you want to build and attract the audience of people that think like you and have the same values and like to work on the same things and tinker. And uh, that's just the most effective way that I found to accomplish all these sort of like external validations and goals is like work on things that I, I find interesting um, because that's where you're going to do your, your best work. I think there are two things that struck me in what you said. So the first is... I mean, first, it's really valuable to hear you as somebody who has achieved a lot of these things say it's okay to care about them. Because I think that one thing that can feel dissonant for people who are first coming into a lot of these spaces is that the people who seem to have the loudest voices and saying, hey, you shouldn't care about all of these title things. Yeah, which is easy to say when you have like a, like a PhD from Stanford and 10,000 followers. And like, exactly. It's easy for you to say, right? Precisely, precisely. And, you know, you, you wonder, hmm, okay, maybe does this person have, have motivations and telling people not to care about these things? Um, but I think another aspect of it, too, is when it comes to the motivation and caring about these things, I think reflecting on it to what you said about having the goal being, I'd like to meet interesting people, people who intrinsically care about the things that I intrinsically care about, is, I think, a much healthier way of thinking about that goal, then I want to get to the top of top of hacker news, because I think also sometimes a way to pervert the, you know, work on something you care about and don't think about getting to the top of hacker news is like, like, if I'm not explicitly thinking about, you know, I want to get this internship, I want people to think about this, as I'm working on this project, but even though like secretly way in the back of my mind, there's still that germ of like, I need this to get to the top of hacker news, like that, that idea is still there. You're just like, let me explicitly tell myself, oh, no, 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 I'm thinking about doing this for a completely different reason, even though it's still kind of there. Yeah, yeah, it can get, it's like you get an identity crisis, really confusing. Yeah, I think that the, the right way to, um, like, I wish I had, someone had told me that, like, it's actually, like, you're not a psychopath for thinking that you want to, like, do these things that other people look cool for doing. But it's just that the, the way to get there is not to explicitly aim for them. It's to, like, work on things that, that you like, which will attract people that like them. Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, I mean, there's a related set of thoughts. So Joel Lehman, who I interviewed some time ago, works on open-endedness. And I think that a lot of his, he, he published a, a book very much about this idea, I think. I'm, the title is, is not coming to me. I'll, I'll link it. But we, I spoke about this with him. And basically, it was also kind of trying to go against this idea of chasing after specific ends, specific goals but rather viewing sort of the primary thing you're trying to do 
as more exploratory, as fun, in a sense. And that kind of act of play as something that is more valuable in and of itself, but then also perhaps a more efficient mechanism by which to achieve some of these goals that you might actually care about. I think that one of the beautiful things about the internet is just that if you are a person who happens to be interested in any very specific thing, well, the internet gives you access to more people than you could ever have hoped to meet before who also happen to be interested in that very specific thing. And so kind of putting yourself out there, as it were, I think the way you put this was like, you know, when I put a project up on Hacker News, I'm kind of walking into the town square being like, hey, look at this cool thing that I made. And, you know, the town square might not have that many people who care about it, but the internet probably does. Yeah, yeah. One um, statist- personal statistic that I like to mention when people talk about things like Hacker News is like, I've I've taken many shots. Like I've written upwards of half a million words. I've made probably somewhere around like 150 little side projects and like only like three or four of them have ever like gotten on the front page of anything or like gotten any users. And I think it's the same for, for other people too. Like unless you're um, sort of at like celebrity levels of fame where everything that you make is scrutinized, which is also kind of horrible. Most of the things you're going to make are just not going to be like get attention, even if they are interesting. That's just the way that like these probabilities work. And you can't, and the, the way to make things that people notice is to just make lots of them. And some of them will eventually catch the wind of, of people that, that you want to meet. And you can't make a hundred things like, uh, unless you're really, really excited with them. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think that, I mean, one of one other project I work on with a few people who are also involved in The Gradient is this newsletter called Last Week in AI. And in addition to kind of publishing newsletters, we write editorials. And mm-hmm. we try to publish those editorials on Hacker News. And it's interesting because I think we also realized at one point for a while that we could get a lot of attention just by writing something about GPT-3 because, you know, you you include that name in the title and a lot of people are going to click on it. But I think more recently we had one piece that I wrote called the AI scaling hypothesis that at first got like a reasonable amount of traffic. And then I think Andre decided, let's try posting this on Hacker News. And that just, you know, kind of gave it a second wind and it randomly got a lot more traffic. And I think that I mean, I actually did put a lot of work into that piece. And so I think, you know, I was kind of happy to see that that reflected in the amount of interest in it. But that was also still kind of a random thing because it was like for a while, I think it wasn't receiving a lot of attention. And then, you know, we just kind of randomly posted on Hacker News a while after we'd initially published it. And then you just kind of see that spike in traffic. So it's interesting to watch. And I think there is like a disaggregation right between it's so easy to value the things you do along these metrics of the number of people who are looking at it, the number of subscribers you get after publishing a piece. And I think at the same time, there are certain lessons you kind of have to learn by actually like engaging in the thing yourself and realizing it's not what you expected. And I think the fact that the value of what you do is pretty disaggregated from the amount of attention it gets, some of these metrics and numbers we chase after. I think that's something that you like any person just kind of has to to learn by experiencing it. Yeah, the the on the disaggregation, the feedback loop is um very long and especially in the beginning, uh non-existent. And so the the lesson from things like, oh, this piece got on Hacker News is not let's dissect and scrutinize this piece that got on Hacker News and try to replicate the success again. It's like, oh, I you know, I didn't have to explicitly optimize for it. I just kind of talked about 
but I was thinking about a lot and did a lot of good research and maybe I should just keep, keep producing posts that I like and then or other people that like it will also like it. Yeah. I think the good takeaway here for, for our listeners is do, do things you're interested in, put them out into the world. And, you know, I, I hope that you'll find the people who find that valuable as well and pay attention to it. I think this is probably a good place to close out, but Linus, I really appreciate your work and the writing and thinking you do. And today's conversation was just really interesting for me. And I want to thank you for, for all of the thoughts today. So I, I really appreciate the generosity with, with your time. Thank you. Thanks. I always learn um, from trying to describe my ideas in new ways and from conversations like this. So this was fun. And thanks for having me on. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.